want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, keep Hello and welcome to the Televerse Sound on Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik, and I'm joined one final time by my fabulous co-host, Mr. Sean Coletti. Uh, Sean, how's it going? Uh, you know, it's bittersweet. Uh, uh, this will be the final edition of the Televerse for me, but it's a lot of good things to say. Uh, we have a lot of great shows to talk about, a lot of appropriately um, finales to talk about as well. Before moving on to like my, my goodbyes and thank yous and whatever, I got to go to Comic-Con this past weekend in Salt Lake City, and that was really cool. That was my first Comic-Con. Uh, <laughs> I got a hug from Manu Bennett. Yeah? Are you still floating from that? <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, because I had gone up when he did his panel to ask a question, and they didn't get to me because we ran out of time. Um, and then my brother and I were just walking around on the floor afterwards, and we ran into him there. He was talking to somebody. It's like, oh, my God, it's Manu Bennett. <laughs> and then I got to talk to him for a minute, and he hugged me, and it was great. <laughs> good times well you know that's that's the fun of some of the i mean obviously that, that's not a small comic-con that you were at but compared to like san diego san diego is so insane it's the only one i've been to that that's not going to happen as much but uh certainly the the not insane the big but not insane comic-cons i know that's a big part of the appeal for a lot of people getting to actually have interactions with people that you respect and whose work you've uh, had a chance to, to really enjoy. Uh, what was, what were the highlights at the con for you? Um, definitely his panel. Uh, there were a couple really good, I went to some that kind of talked about, um, turning ideas and, uh, storyboards and stuff into actual products. A lot of like very intelligent people talking about, uh, good ways to get into the business and really, focus attention um and it translates well i think to some of the stuff that i do which isn't comic related but still writing so that was great uh the arrow panel discussion was good it was also 75 years of batman so we got a lot of good batman stuff but mostly just the merchandise that i came away with i was i was very happy with although my bank account's not very happy <laughs> that's they they go hand in hand there's you can only have one you can't have both after Comic-Con. Yeah. But uh, I've still not gone to any other ones. People say I should go to Chicago, seeing as it's right here for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, maybe next year. We'll see what I what I can commit to. Uh, lots of great conversation on, uh, you, you're talking about Man, Manu Bennett. Uh, lots of great Spartacus talk for me this week on Twitter because my reviews of Spartacus at the AV Club are officially done. I have the season one, uh, episode 12, and then the finale of season one. My reviews are up at, uh, at the AV Club. And, of course, the fabulous Ryan McGee, friend of the show, already covered the rest of the show for the AV Club, which is why... They had me go back and fill in the gap of season one. So there are no more reviews needed, uh, which is tears, because uh, I've loved covering the show there. But that led to lots of Spartacus talk <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, for example, um, what was it? Christopher said uh, he started watching Spartacus because he liked Manu Bennett on Arrow. So then he started, that's led into Spartacus. Um, both Vikram and uh, and 
and Laura said, say that they're going to check it out. So that makes me happy. Uh, let me know what you guys think when you get to it. Talk Sparks with Greg and Andy as well and Alan and uh, uh, let's see, Sonia and Rowan haven't seen it. Um, for Sonia, it's on the list, though, so I'm glad to hear that. Let me know again. Let me know when you catch up with it. Um, let's see. What else? Other uh, big shows or lots of talk about Galavant. I have seen the pilot now. Guys, it's awesome. It's really good. And and one of the things to keep in mind that I wasn't aware of, it's going to be a half-hour show, which I think will make a very big difference to the pacing. They're going to air two episodes a week, but it is, it's structured as a half-hour show. So that is, I think, very promising uh, for the show. Uh, let's see. You talked about Galavant with Simon, Matt, Carl, and Kyle. Uh, Carl wants to know, have, have you ever watched The Middle? I've been watching some episodes for the first time, and it's really funny. And Kyle seconds this. I've not seen any of The Middle. Have you seen any of The Middle? Yeah, I've seen quite a bit of it. Not every episode, but it is a very solid show that I think kind of gets overlooked a little bit, especially on uh, ABC or you have like heavy hitters like Modern Family. But yeah, definitely a lot of love for the middle. I, I know I really appreciate that cast. And people say that the, the kids are some of the best kids on TV, most entertaining. Um, so that's one that I'm sure at some point I'll catch up with, but uh, but certainly not at the moment. I'm, I'm too behind on everything else. Uh, Beth answered the question of the week, says she's most looking forward to seeing what uh, Cadence does with the end of Parenthood. And then at midseason, she's really looking forward to uh, Agent Carter. Brian wants to know what we think about uh, Brian Fuller's um, High Moon, which is going to be premiering September 15th on Sci-Fi Channel. And this one, you know, when he tweeted about it, it sort of triggered something. I remembered it, but I it completely slipped uh, my mem- my memory. In the meanwhile, uh, what do you know about High Moon? I don't know anything about it. When yeah, when he had mentioned that, uh, I looked it up to see that it existed, and um, I'm really looking forward to it. Obviously, anything that that guy is involved with, and that's not just our love for Hannibal, but everything that he's done has really made that a necessity to watch uh, or check out whatever he produces. So definitely looking forward to anything that he has a hand in. Yeah, I mean, and this is uh, going to be now the, the third time that uh, a pilot, because uh, this is a pilot, but it's being, it wasn't picked up. And now I, it's, it's at least, I, and maybe I have this wrong, but I believe it's uh, basically been picked up as a TV movie. So that means that will have happened with uh, High Moon. And then before that, 1313 Mockingbird Lane, um, which was the remake of uh, The Monsters with uh, Eddie Izzard and um, Portia de Rossi and you know, several other people that ABC aired. This was like sort of a Halloween special. And then we're going to talk about it at the end of the podcast in the Make You Watch-a-thon. Uh, but same thing is true with Amazing Screw on Head. So Brian Fuller's uh, pilots may not always get picked up, but they tend to be pretty great. So, um, I'm, yeah, I'm a little, little stoked about that one. We'll see exactly, you know, what, uh, what happens with it. But, uh, but anyway, so that's coming as well. Uh, talked to Treme with Dan, uh, talked, um, animated pilots that aired, but didn't get picked up with Matt, Zandra and Kevin, including one called captain, no, called constant pain, which sounds pretty amazing and never happened. I recommend you check it out. Apparently you can find the pilot online on like YouTube and stuff, but, uh, they made four episodes of this sh- action show that was supposed to debut right after nine 11. And so didn't, um, uh, yes, fighting international terrorism. It was a little too fresh, uh, of a topic. Yeah. So that one, but that, but the, it's kind of steampunky and that was pretty fun as well. So it was, it was cool talking about all those different shows with you guys this week. Noel says he's looking forward to our stalker podcast. Noel, it's called, uh, I I know that you know this, but I'm sorry. I feel like just in case I have to let you down. Uh, Sean may be leaving, uh, the, the televerse for now. Um, we will never stop talking 
Hannibal at This Is Our Design, because I've had several people ask about this. And obviously, Sean, it's your podcast. He, he may kick me off, but until then, I, <laughs> I'm not letting I'm, – I'm not leaving This Is Our Design by any shot. Um, but there's no way a stalker podcast is going to happen. There's a 0% chance. The stalker podcast. She's, she's just trying to fool you, Noel. She's actually writing the notes for the podcast, the first one right now. Well, whichever way it goes, <clears throat> uh, always enjoy talking about it with you, Noel. Uh, any other feedback? I mean, there was there were so much great um, uh, tweets and, and just back and forth with uh, listeners who are going to wanted to say a, bid you a fond farewell. Yeah, and and I have responded or will respond to all of them individually. And thank you so much for that. That's very kind. It's been great. A uh, whole lot of fun. Uh, and thank you, of course, to Kate. I Before I even started writing reviews for Sound on Sites, I had been a frequenter and a listener of the podcast for uh, about a year. So I, I probably heard maybe 70 episodes of the Televerse before coming on as a guest. So it was a really big privilege to kind of come on and do that and, and fill in for Simon because Simon – uh, was so great, is so great at doing this, and I love kind of hearing both of your banter all the time. So it'll be nice to to fall back back into the the listener position. But yeah, I had a blast doing this, so I'm I'm really glad that you considered me, and that's it went relatively well without too many technical hitches. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, s- Skype and my computer, uh, but and and you, yeah, you're not going very far because we will be calling you back as as frequently as we can. So don't think we're losing your email there, there, Sean. You're not off the hook that easy. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna disappear like Clark <laughs> Kent or something. No, yeah, I I I'm sure I let all of you guys know. You, Ricky, uh, Depayan, anybody who does any of the podcasts here, like True Detective, Walking Dead, or Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, any any week that's lights, you're always welcome to to fall back on me as a backup. So yeah, we will. Be, Sean's not going that far, listeners. Don't worry about it. Um, also, want to mention, uh, of course, we had a, a reading. We had a reading review uh, at um, iTunes from Jason in the OC, who says Kate and Sean play off each other beautifully. Thank you so much. Five star rating from him. We really appreciate that. Of course, ratings and reviews really do help other people find the podcast. There's so many TV podcasts in iTunes. If you like the podcast and you want to support it, that's an easy way to do so. Um, at, at Sound on Sight right now, uh, I the TIFF is going on, so there's a bunch of different articles and reviews going up there every day. Uh, I was able to interview a composer, Michael Yuserski, who has a film at, is playing at TIFF this year, the, uh, the Little Death. It's an Australian film. Um, it's going to be airing. They had the first screening this past Sunday, but it'll be airing next Sunday as well. If you are curious about composition, that was a lengthy. There's like it's split into two parts. It was like a half hour conversation. There's a lot there if you'd like to dive into it as a sound and sight. Um, and but yeah, we'll be get, we'll be getting into fall coverage. Sean, Sean's going to be you're going to be covering rain for us when that starts up. We're going to have all sorts of different stuff happening at uh, Sound and Sight TV in the next couple of weeks. But uh, but for now, I think we should get into this week. Because there's plenty of TV to talk about, yeah? Woo! Yeah, make sure you stick around for the, the final discussion at the end. They'll make you watch it, on because it's doozy. And, uh. yeah, Samurai Jack, which is the one I'll be talking about, or will have made Kate and Simon watch, uh, is one of the most underrated shows because it's one of the best shows in television history. So 
please stick around for that. Oh, yeah. I can't believe I almost didn't mention it. Instead of the DVD shelf, like you said, it's our annual Watch-A-Thon, Make-You-Watch-A-Thon anniversary show. Uh, so you you have subjected me, I say subjected, but I'm a big fan of the show <laughs> as well. So, uh, oh, no, heaven forbid. Um, to, to Samurai Jack, uh, Simon's Pick was Frisky Dingo. And then, of course, I had you guys watch uh, The Amazing Screw-On Head. So it's an all-animation Make-You-Watch-A-Thon, and that's coming at the very end of the podcast uh, so make sure, like you say, they stick around for that. But for now, let's take a break and come back with our week in reality and comedy. Get around and let us sing about a girl who had almost everything. Oh, it's Mabel! Hey there! Did you say stable? No, you said Mabel! Okay, hit it, boys! Who's that girl? Week in reality and comedy, we're going to talk a little So You Think You Can Dance finale before diving in with the comedies. First, The League, which had a season premiere, Sitting Shiva or Sitting Shiva. Uh, then Married, The Old Date. Then uh, You're the Worst, Finish Your Milk, Garfunkel and Oates, Hair Swap, and Gravity Falls, Sock Opera. So nice to have Gravity Falls back. Uh, but first, let's go to So You Think You Can Dance. And uh, all is right with the world because Valerie didn't win. Like, it looked for a second might happen uh but my question to you is not about that but it's about what what has your experience been this season with this show we don't know if it's going to be back or not they last season they told us in the finale that it had been renewed uh the things are not looking optimistic is what i'm hearing uh just sort of like based on things nigel's been saying um are you glad that you devoted the chunk of your summer to so you think you can dance and if so do you think you'll go back and watch previous seasons oh this is such a multifaceted question um my experience it's it's fun and interesting because i remember uh listening to, to you and simon talk about the amazing race over and over not like that was the part of the podcast because i didn't watch the amazing race or so i was like ah oh, well whatever i'm just gonna go like make a cup of tea and i feel like Fast a lot forward. of listeners <laughs> feel like a lot of listeners probably do that uh, with us talking about so you think you could dance but the thing is like i having been a first time viewer of it i really enjoyed it and i know nothing about dance uh i've had friends who have been really interested in dance but i've never really supported them in the way that i probably wish that i should have um but man it was very educational for one it was also good to see a reality competition that didn't suck as much as a lot of other reality competitions tend to in many areas and specifically the judges um yeah and there were some legitimately beautiful moments this whole season so uh despite some things i would have changed obviously because we all have our favorites uh i i really enjoyed it i'm glad that uh you asked me to i'm glad i made the decision to stick with it if it does come back uh, I think I will watch another season of it, even though I won't be talking about it week to week. I, I think I just enjoy sitting down and watching it. That was the thing for me this season. Even as frustrated as I got with the judges, with America, for their voting. But obviously, but I didn't vote, so technically I don't think I'm allowed to really have an opinion, which doesn't stop me. But uh, 
despite all of that, every Wednesday or as soon as I would get to watch it, I would be like kind of anxious until I got to watch it that week. It, it was just a really relaxing and positive experience for me every week watching the show. It's something I can share with my sister and it, and the, the, like the one other person I know in real life who actually watches the show, but it's a very, it's just such a positive show. They don't demean people. They don't uh, waste your time in, in the audition rounds, making fun of people this is a show about people trying to do something the best they possibly can and trying to create art and trying to, because they tend, the dancers tend to be so young, sort of trying to find themselves and pushing themselves to a new level they've never had to experience or never had the opportunity to experience. So I think it really is a very special show, despite all of my frustrations with it this season. But Valerie is America's second favorite dancer, Kate. Oh my god. So if you do ever go back and watch last season, I mean you saw Amy this year. Uh she danced with Zach and she danced with Zach again in this finale. Uh so she won last year. She's a badass. Uh she and so this season America is like, hmm, Amy? She was the they had a male and a female winner last year. Uh she was America's favorite girl last year. And let's compare Amy to Valerie, which just, I was all full of praise for her performance in the finale, but there's no compare. There's zero comparison between those two. One of these things is not like the other, and it is ridiculous. Yeah, but yeah, at least Jessica was there. It was it was a good group of ten, I would say. Uh, what did you think about? Because I hadn't seen the video that I had mentioned it had gone viral, but that Australian guy. I thought he was good, um, though. There was a bit. Uh, too much tumbling in his routine for my taste. It got a bit floor routine-y. Um, I would, I would be shocked if he didn't have a background in gymnastics, but he's obviously incredibly talented. And I would, I would have loved to see him in a choreographed routine because it seemed like that. I mean, maybe that was, but it seemed like that was like a solo, like a self choreographed or like, you know, the kind of thing as opposed to somebody really trying to tell a story with it. So, um, yeah, I, th- I thought he was quite the badass. Um, put some of our gentlemen to shame this season. It kind of also showed just how overboard and ridiculous some of the praise for some of the various men this season has been. Um, but yeah, I, I would have liked to see have seen him with some less tumbly choreography, as fantastic as he was as that. that. What did you think? Yeah, it was really impressive just because it was such a departure from some of the styles that we've seen this season, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right that it was very tumbly, but um, yeah, just the visual spectacle of it, I really enjoyed. So I'll probably look up a couple of his videos. Um, but yeah, other than, let's see, other than Valerie making it that far, I would have liked to have seen somebody pick a Bridget routine, but oh The well. jive, man! I w- in, in the, the, the number one routine i couldn't there were so many that i i couldn't believe like the first thing that i thought of was one of the random valor uh valerie and ricky routines it's like are you kidding me none of them did that ballet that absolutely stunning contemporary ballet oh there was just a number like when debbie allen uh was saying that she immediately knew that ricky and valerie were the ones to beat i was like oh oh you have got to be kidding me here with this because <laughs> I mean, and and Valerie was like a different dancer in that routine that they 
we they had the Travis Wall routine that the two of them had as at the first week that they were together that they redid in the finale. She was so much better this time around. She's really clearly grown quite a lot, but I'm just that was ridiculous as far as I was concerned. Yeah, it made sense obviously for Valerie to pick something like the the stairs tap dance, and that's fine. But she was still staring at her that, feet. Yeah. The one that didn't make much sense to me, which I still thought was a good routine, just not a highlight of the season, was the Rudy and Tanisha one, despite liking both of those performers. Yeah, if you could, if you're gonna have Tanisha up there, like uh, the Rudy one with Allison, I thought was totally made sense to me. If you're gonna get Tanisha up there, get let's do that ridiculously hot Latin one that she did. Let's do that one instead. There's a number of other routines that I mean, it seemed very odd. It seemed very much determined based on who they could get. And they just wanted to make sure that it wasn't all Travis Wall routines. Um, I was surprised we didn't get more Sonia. And I think they also, it seems like they let the um, the final four pick first. Um, and that determined, like, like, oh, they already took the the vow one. Uh, what's left? Sort of. There's only a, There were only a handful of really, truly amazing ones for me. Um, I would have loved to see, for example, that group number, the mini group, Sonia Taya mini group number. Yeah. Uh, why didn't we see that one again? There's no reason they all have to be two-person dances. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So that should have been a fair game. But, uh, yeah, like, like I said, thoroughly enjoyed the season. Congratulations to Ricky. He was obviously the best dancer all season. You could tell from immediately in the opening number where he had the spotlight where things were going to go from there. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, certainly deserved. Yeah. Well, are you are you making your way to the, uh, to the tour? Did you get your tickets? I... Am considering it. Yeah, we're <laughs> talking with my friend about it, and uh, we'll see. There's still tickets available, so I, okay. I'm not out of time yet. Okay. Well, I, I will have to report back on the podcast after I I go to see the show and see what I think and just how much of some of this stuff transcends. I really liked the original, the new numbers. By the way, I liked that opening top uh, top twenty number was really great, and I liked they did the the top 10 with the all-stars they did that last season as well i really like that here too it's nice to have some new routines amongst all of the the favorites as it were so um yeah that was there, there was a sorry just like this notion that the zombie witch king thing was the best um hip-hop all season when they could have had that jessica and twitch number again are you kidding me but sorry Letting it all go, letting it all go. All is right yeah, with the world. Okay. Valerie didn't win. Um, as as talented as she is at what she does, I would have liked to see that Aaron Valerie tap number again. I could I could have gone for some of that, but um, oh yeah, most definitely ahead of some of those other routines, certainly. Yeah, but anyways, that will wrap up our discussion this season of So You Think You Can Dance, uh, and for the week, our discussion of reality. Let's move on to the comedies and start with the league premiere, Sitting Shiva. <laughs> I really enjoyed this episode. What did, What did you think? Yeah, it was it was great, especially uh, Teflon Dre. Um, <laughs> that was a whole lot of fun. I, I'm not as familiar with the league. I've, I've caught quite a bit of it, but it's something that I've not gone through and watched every episode of. Um, so I hadn't seen Adam Brody in that role, and I looked up, and he had been in a couple episodes. But uh, it's good to see him. Um, the, obviously, the premise is ridiculous and great in, in every way that the league is. It's also nice because I'm actually doing fantasy football for the first time this year because my friend forced me to, and I know nothing about football. So uh, watching that, watching the league in tandem with doing that should be a whole lot of fun. But yeah, some great jokes there. Uh, just Taco just playing golf out everywhere was awesome. 
I really enjoyed. I mean, that's the closest I've seen anybody else come to Caddyshack. Uh, and I liked that that was a subtext of it, but they didn't really, at least for me, it was, um, it was just, I, I thought they really captured the spirit of that with, um, the, the Chevy Chase feel to that and the, um, Bill Murray feel to that. Um, when they, when they go outside, I was just kept waiting for them to be, start hitting up, hitting marigolds. Um, that's a difficult thing to say, cause that's a beloved comedy classic there, but, uh, the 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 Laundry thing is probably my favorite. I really like when they change up the dynamic a little bit, so I'm hoping that'll be a recurring bit throughout the season. Um, and yeah, I just I was, I'm glad to be back in the world of the league. It's always fun. Yeah, it's it's not one of F- FX's or not FXX's most beloved comedies. When it has stuff like Always Sunny, um, kind of on the comedy side, the straight comedy, and then Louis on the more artistic side. But uh, FX slash X has been so good um, with these, maintaining them for several seasons. And I, I've seen episodes through all of the seasons, and, you know, it's it's not really dropped off at all. So, like you said, changing the dynamic a little bit should be um, something to aspire to, I guess. But but even so, the comedy's there. Definitely. Well, uh, how about the, the next FX comedy, or the, I guess the first FX comedy, not FX Hex, uh, which this week is, is married, the old date. This was... Um, not a full misfire, but this I think was the weakest episode of the of the season for me. What what did you think? I had thought that about last week's. I mean, this one was maybe just slightly better for me, but again, yeah, nothing that really popped, which is unfortunate because we're a few episodes in now, so you want these to kind of be sticking well. But uh, again, the AJ story just it hasn't gotten annoying yet, but it's not going anywhere it's not being useful and you know as problematic as some aspects of the main story was i would have preferred just a whole episode of that and dealing with you know regrets about having made certain business decisions in the past yeah it's it felt this was more in keeping for me with the beginning of the season where it felt much more dramatic and less comedic and that's you know they're if they're gonna play with tone then that make you know i'm good with that uh i just would have liked to have been laughing more i guess and so maybe i would have given uh especially with john hodgman when he shows up i was really hoping to laugh more because i think he's hilarious um and so to really keep the aj stuff so um uncomfortable and angry really um, is fitting for the, where the character's at emotionally, but uh, when you compare it, when you add that on top of um, Nat Faxon, um, his character being more upset and sort of and just angry and kind of bitchy though, for much of the episode, um, it was a bit too much for me, I guess. Yeah, it did have Morgan, though, from the mini project. Who I always enjoy, but uh, I couldn't place him at first because that hair. Yeah, it was it was great makeup so uh he's also going to appear in another episode that we'll be talking about which was kind of coincidental and funny yep yep always uh always good to see him pop up any other thoughts on uh on this one unmarried no i mean like as my final thoughts for the podcast of as we've been talking about for these weeks like i i'm still okay with it i'm, I'm fine watching more episodes of married i just there's a better and funnier show there that hasn't been tapped into yet. So I'm really hoping that for the second season, they figure out how to do that. Yeah. Um, let's move on to you're the worst, which, uh, 
I was surprised by this week because not that it was funny, not that I enjoyed the episode. Um, it, a more serious episode for them as well. But again, this time I was actually laughing somewhat as well. But because it feels very much like an episode 8 out of 10. This feels like, uh, or even maybe a 9, but this is episode 8. This, I could really feel where this was in the arc of this of the season. And I wasn't expecting that from this show. What did you, what did you think of that element? Just that how they messed with that relationship and broke them up? Yeah, well, just it feels like a breakup before uh, they, that prompts them to have a conversation and then we end the season on a cliffhanger or, or an anticlimax subverting the cliffhanger of the proposal or will they get back together or something. Uh, this didn't feel like this is clearly not a done deal, them breaking up because it's then you don't have the show. Um, so, you know, in that way, it felt very much like a end of season stake raising moment. Yeah, I was going to say that there was a, a finality about it, which was strange because there's still material to go. Um, and again, kind of how I was worried about when we mentioned when they first got officially together, doing the typical rom-com thing of toying with will they stay together or not can get very, very tedious. And actually, Gretchen reminded me a lot about Jess uh, in this episode, New Girl, mm -hmm. um, just in the ways that she was speaking and in a couple specifically lines that sounded like a New Girl script. So um, I wouldn't say I'm hesitant yet because they've, they've proven that they can handle the writing uh, all around the show, not just with those two characters. So that, that finality... It's more intriguing, I guess, rather than worrisome, just because what does the rest of the arc look like? You know, that's immediately something I'm curious about. And we don't know all the information about the ring. Um, we don't know a lot of information, actually. So I I think it works. It was strange and, like, heavy, even for You're the Worst episodes, which certainly have, like, an element here or there but that is heavy especially regarding, like, what's the roommate's name? Um, uh, oh, goodness. Edgar? Edgar. Edgar, yeah. Edgar's issues, so how that's brought in. But, uh, you know, I think I thought it was done well. It was a slightly different tone, and it still worked, I thought. Mm -hmm. And again, to touch with uh, Lindsay as well and see where she's at, that, that also felt like an, uh, that's going to come out at the end of the season. It's not going to be pretty. Uh, at least that's what I'm guessing right now. Um, yeah, there's got to be more than what we know with that ring. I don't think that was actually a ring that he got to propose to her with. Um, it was certainly a surprise, which I thought was nice. It put the audience very much in her shoes. And um, I think it's very fitting with the characters for her to react that way, especially for that to be what pushes it further. So he stands up for her but in doing so, uh, does not respect her wishes with their, with, you know, at dinner. But when the, when she thinks that the reason he's done that is because this is a second sign that he's becoming very serious about them, the, her response to flee feels very natural. Um, yeah. And it, it just, it was, I was surprised. I guess I wasn't surprised. It was very affecting for me to see her made so small. I think the show did a good job with that, um, with that lunch scene, that very brief interaction with her and her parents. I thought was very effective. Drink your milk. 
Oh, God. Yeah. And just that she's got the little slight milk mustache at the end, too, yeah. which worked. Uh, but no, I'm I, I, this is I, I'm very I'm very intrigued. I'm very you see, you're kind of hesitant. I'm very excited about what's coming next based on this. Yeah, no, I got a lot more confidence with this one than I do with Married. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how this turns out. Uh, and I will give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Well, let's move on to Garfunkel and Oates, Hair Swap. And, uh, you know, I kind of enjoyed the fact that by the, at the end of the episode, they're like, what was this episode even about? I mean, it was a bit <laughs> on the nose. But, I mean, and, and also because the episode was clearly about very a very distinct thing. It's like this, that's it was about gender representations and societal constructs of blonde and brunette. Like it was about, it was clearly about stuff. Um, but so like to have them kind of poke fun with that, with that was pretty fun. But my favorite part of this had to be the pop, you know, appearance of Jonah Ray, but more specifically Kamel Nanjiani, who I thought was hilarious this week. Oh man. That's, oh God. Yeah. The morning after his dialogue and that so, so perfect. And, uh, I was, I was laughing out loud, yeah. The fact that he still brought her coffee, you know? Mm hmm That's what really killed me. He's like, he says this stuff. With total, I thought it was fantastic. So amazing. Such a great line. Such great lines, but also such a great delivery. And then he says all this stuff. He's like, here's your coffee. <laughs> I mean, I think that's great. It tells you so much about him. That detail. Just... You kind of want the two of them to work it out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Whoever wrote that script was brilliant. It was... The fact that he said now he feels like he has to go stop a rain just to get back to zero. Like that was that was great. Great writing. Hilarious. Yeah. I think that the writers for this team are really clever. Both them and, and the the writing staff that they have I think are really good. So yeah, that guest appearance they had several great guest appearances. The the songs in this I thought worked really well. even from right at the beginning with the the Facebook birthday one. Um yeah, all very relevant things that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, it would be nice if Busy Phillips popped back up because she she was so underused in this one. I would have liked to see her be more prominent or like basically get her own episode because I love her, of course, from Cougar Town and Freaks and Geeks before that, of course. Um, and the actress who plays Cheryl, I don't have her name in front of me, but I've enjoyed her for quite a while. So I thought that it would be nice if every now and again, you know, if this show runs for several seasons, I could see that her popping up every year, every other year or something uh, in that role and just kind of them having fun with it. But, uh, but no, I enjoyed this one. Uh, I still, you know, I think it's, it wasn't the, the biggest slam dunk of the season for me, but I still did have a lot of fun with it. Any other thoughts on Garfunkel notes? No, again, very solid. So I'm looking forward to finishing the season. Our last comedy this week is the triumphant return of Gravity Falls. What did you think of Sock Opera? And did it trump, did its songs trump Garfunkel notes for you this week? The songs, not so much individually, but I guess if you're looking at how they integrate into the episode, like this was, in Gravity Falls' case, uh, part of a bigger picture performance, so maybe it gets the edge for that. Um, I really like the ones in Garfunkel notes, but yeah, it's it's great to have Gravity Falls back on the really strange schedule that it's on. Um, but uh, definitely one of the, the better animated shows on right now. And this was great. Great to see Bill. Um, <laughs> great to see Mabel use the, the tickling as part of the resolution. Um, it was less focused on some of the, the other supporting players. I always like 
when Seuss and Wendy are, are used effectively, and um, and that was uh, a little bit lacking here, but that was fine. The the premise was great. Uh, just to see Mabel like fall immediately in love with some douchebag. Um, <laughs> yeah, but his ponytail. He's gay. Yeah, but uh, I guess. He... <laughs> <laughs> no, it was hilarious. Yeah. It was it was hilarious. Yeah, uh, and her friends as well. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I almost wish we got like two of these episodes every week, but um, like we did in the first week. But yeah, this was probably not as strong as uh, Gulf Wars or the um, the second episode of our two part premiere, but uh, still had laugh out loud moments and a good um, supernatural hook to it, which is kind of what the show always does, right? Yeah, I always like when they let. Because it is so focused on the supernatural element most of the time, which is very much Dipper's thing, I always do enjoy when they allow uh, Mabel to just really take over an episode. Um, not all the time, maybe, but I like you know when we get her particular flair like we do here, and like we did with the karaoke earlier in the season. Uh, so I, I had a lot of fun with this episode. Um, I don't really have much to add, but again, this is just a show that is full of life and energy and fun. And it's nice to have one of those. And I think it really, because we love adventure time here on the televerse as well. Um, and a big part of what makes that show really work is it's, uh, it's runtime being 10, 11 uh, minutes. They just do such marvelous storytelling in that shorter time. But I do think that uh, gravity falls really does a good job of capturing that same kind of energy, but in a show that's twice as long. Um, and I can sometimes could sometimes just Maybe it would be more challenging to sustain that, but I think they do a good job with it. Um, as for this episode in particular, yeah, I, I, it's, I mean, they had me at Sock Opera. I mean, come on. This is my kind of an episode, but I didn't really have anything else to contribute, so I guess I'll, I'll cut it off there. Uh, what wins your week in comedy? Um, just because of how different it was, uh, I'm going to give it to You're the Worst again. Because uh, good episodes for Gravity Falls and Garfunkel and Oats, and obviously the So You Think You Can Dance finale, um, there were definitely things to like about that. But You're the Worst continues to impress in, in some small ways. Yeah, it's, for me, it's definitely You're the Worst. And uh, it wasn't the most laugh out loud episode of the season, but I, I was the clear winner for me this week, at least. And we'll see whether that, that could easily change next week. But for now, I'm going to give it to you, you're the worst as well. So now we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back with our week in genre and drama. Ne me quitte pas Il faut oublier tout oublier Qui s'enfouit déjà Oublier le temps Des malentendus Le temps perdu À savoir comment Oublier ces heures qui tuaient parfois à coup de pourquoi le cœur de bonheur ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas. This week in genre and drama, we're going to kick things off with Doctor Who, Robot of Sherwood. Then we have Outlander, Rent. And then we're going to move over to the dramas and do a little talk on Boardwalk Empire, the premiere Golden Days for Boys and Girls. And then The Nick, Where's the Dignity, The Honorable Woman, 
the Motherline, Masters of Sex, Story of My Life, penultimate episode there of the season. And then, of course, The Leftovers had their finale, The Prodigal Son Returns. But first, let's kick things off with some genre talk. Unfortunately, my Doctor Who review is not up yet. I uh, have had a series of things that have... uh, stopped me from getting it up it will hopefully be up soon by the time people are listening to this hopefully my review is already up at sound on site um i have many thoughts about this episode um that i'm not i'm not going to get into here because they're specific there's so many callbacks in this episode to classic who it's ridiculous um i'm gonna i'll enumerate that in my review uh instead let's talk uh here just about stuff that you can actually understand because uh, you haven't seen any classic who so i won't talk your ear off about that um what did you think of this episode and it's coming down on on being pro robin hood robin hood was a dude what did you what do you think i enjoyed it quite a bit at points um oh let's see it was certainly fun absolutely in the classic adventure style uh films that you've seen out of medieval times that have kind of kind of been farcical it very much fit with that, so I enjoyed it on that level. It went too far into the cheese, like in the resolution, like where the three of them are just firing the arrow, and it's just enough to... That was so terrible. Like, my that notes was, for this episode, oh my gosh, it's like, you know, vaguely positive. It's, it, this this episode feels very disposable to me. Uh, it, it's very much a romp. You know, that's how I feel like that's how anyone would describe it. A lighthearted romp through the forest of Sherwood. And then you get to the end. And that was just terrible. I mean, they couldn't come up with anything better than that. I mean, <laughs> it's like, the, oh, it's going to explode. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me drop this little tiny, you know, that it was a big arrow compared to arrows. But uh, compared to a spaceship, no, that's not going to tip the sky. I mean, ah, and and the fact that they have me thinking about that shows how horribly they bungled the execution of it as well because they weren't yeah. able to successfully make me not care and they should have been able to do that at the very least yeah that was my journey like getting to there and being like oh, what the shit is this and then like <laughs> the, the conversations afterward though i was i was clearly ready to be like okay that was that episode i'm done let's move on but then the conversation between uh, Robin Hood and the Doctor after that, I thought, was very good dialogue, uh, talking about the parallels between the two and ideas of heroism, um, ideas of legends, ideas of reality, how people remember other people. There was a lot there to unpack, I think, and to get that, which I thought was probably the best part of the episode after what was clearly the worst for me, um, kind of redeemed it a little bit. So I, I really liked that those last few minutes there. I've really appreciated what they've done with Clara this season. Um, and cause I, you haven't really watched much of her before the season, correct? Correct. Yeah. She, they did a horrible job writing for her last, last year. I know that some people, you know, friend of the show has appeared on the show. Kyle Anderson of, of Nerdist, uh, loves Clara and loved her last year, but I thought she was horribly written last year, not as a character, but as a series of conflicting, uh, uh, plot points and beats depending on what each episode needed so to see her written so well in these three episodes when when uh just her just sort of giddy glee at holy crap oh my god that's totally robin hood 
Jenna Coleman nailed that, and then to have that so quickly, and like I, to have that quick little beat of you laugh too much to be happy, and then to take that then to her frustration with the two of them when they just won't shut up. You know, I thought that I really enjoyed watching her navigate the episode. She really was the, as far as I was concerned, she was the lead of much of the episode, and um, that that whole dinner table scene with the with sure, the uh, the sheriff of Nottingham whose entire wardrobe and hair and everything was a clear shout out to Anthony Ainley, who played the master back. Uh, he was the, the third master on the show. Um, There's just so much to enjoy with, with all of that. Um, so yeah, there was, there was a lot for me to appreciate with this episode, even as I was watching it kind of feeling like it was popcorn until we got to that arrow scene. I was, I was very much willing to go with it. Um, I mean, I just, I'm going to go to Comic-Con next year and there are going to be, especially if Doctor Who is there next year, there are going to be so many Claras in that red dress and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe there'll be Robin Hoods as well. Why not? Looks a lot like Oliver Queen though, so I don't know. Maybe not. But yeah, no, that's just, it was just so cute and fun. I mean, they, the fencing with the spoon, you know, Capaldi pulled it off, I thought. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to to enjoy i thought in this episode even if maybe less to analyze but more to enjoy do you have any other thoughts on on doctor who uh did just the whole laughing and the doctor just despising all of it i thought was a great running gag there i do like i love how um he's saying about the loot player i have so many diseases if you really be dead in six months uh and, and then like by the end of the episode the doctor has accepted that they are real no mention is made he just he doesn't like go oh i should probably heal you buddy yeah just kind of left hanging there i thought that was kind of awesome that guy's gonna be dead in six months <laughs> oh good times and, and just like it's embracing of like even a monty python kind of minstrels thing with the singing he's like i feel like that is very much um capaldi's doctor no singing <laughs> he's the he's the father <laughs> in the holy grail who doesn't want uh, the son to sing um yeah so Good times hanging out in Sherwood, and hopefully next week we'll get back to a more intense episode. Uh, let's move on to Outlander, Rent. Uh, what did you think of them adding more history in? There was a bit more history this this season, this, this episode. There was, and that aspect of it, I think, did work. So um, her realization that she had been to the site before and kind of already knew what was going to happen to Clan McKenzie having that information there and seeing what she can do with that, I think is something that season one should address and hopefully we'll do it well. What I like most about this episode was seeing her breaking points and now she's in a place where she doesn't care and she will be defiant and really like stand up and not give a shit to everybody. And that was great because that created a lot of interesting conflict interesting dialogue after the fact with jamie and with the other guy who i don't know is he like a bookkeeper or something what is i he? want to say his name is like ned or something yeah, yeah he was the, the lawyer yeah is. okay um but yeah so to, to get that that dialogue with the allies afterwards so she's definitely like has a place among these people mm -hmm. yeah the um the some of it was a bit neat for me a bit tidy um, with the, the character interactions, um, with the one guy who's really not, who's been very kind of chill with her the whole time, who ke keeps having to follow her around all of a sudden getting so 
angry with her was a bit out of nowhere. I don't know how well that worked for me, but in general, I have been enjoying this episode and watch, you know, the, the comparatively even handed approach um, to the to, to these characters, I think is working well from her perspective. Um, it's revealed that no, he's not. He's raising money. He's getting money from these people. He's exploiting Jimmy's scars to get money from these people. But it's not to line his pockets like we think. But that doesn't undo like the destruction of that one family's house and the fact that this other family has nothing to feed their baby with anymore. This is still it's still not necessarily uh, all positive. So I like that they don't. Uh, while she ends up, I think where she ends up is don't, again, Jamie's advice of don't judge what you don't understand. And that's, I think, where she ends up at the end of the episode rather than um, they're all good all the time. I do think that cliffhanger is just stupid, though, because we know she's not going to say anything because it's that's the TV show. So she's not going to and they would kill the, the, the brother of the Laird. And that's not going to happen. In episode six, so I don't. I thought I'll be very surprised if that goes any way other than the most expected of her saying she's fine. I don't know. What do, what do you think is going to happen with that cliffhanger? But it's a cliffhanger, and so there's an equal chance of both things happening, right? Because either one makes it. No, that's absolutely. She's going to say that she's fine, and that's going to earn her more trust, and that's that's the way it's going to work out. Okay. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I guess technically they could have her go spend some time with the Redcoats because then that would let her see evil, not Frank, uh, rapey dude again, and they might want to bring him in that way. But I, I just, yeah, I, just, I was a little, I was, li- I was yeah. a little unimpressed by that ending. That would seem more like a season two kind of thing. I would assume yeah. that we would stick with the Mackenzies for most, if not all, of this. So. Yeah, and it's sixteen uh, episode yeah. season. This is only they're going to do eight and eight. They're going to split the season in half. And again, this is only episode five. So I, you know, we still got a few more weeks. Yeah, I completely forgot that they were splitting the season like that. And yeah. it's so full because obviously it's a full hour, so it feels like we had more than five episodes. But yeah, maybe they'll do that actually at the end of episode eight. You know, she either gets taken or voluntarily goes somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the red coats, but uh, I, could, I could see that working. Yeah. Um, let's move on to Boardwalk Empire, which had its premiere of its final season, Golden Days for Boys and Girls, and they jumped forward a bit in time. That's all I know about this episode because I have not seen it yet. What did you think of the premiere? Just a couple of quick things here. Um, just to let people know that Boardwalk Empire is still a show that exists. This will be its last season of the three HBO dramas that are ending or will have ended by the end of the year. So True Blood, The Newsroom, and, and Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk is the one that I still think, despite uh, some of its issues, and those other two certainly have issues as well, um, is compelling enough TV to watch. And this episode, I think, really pitches a good case for that, I suppose. Uh, big time jump which was very interesting. Uh, we're now in the 30s. We've passed over a couple key events in the history of these characters. Um, and this episode focuses a lot on Nucky, um, which might turn some people off if they, if that's been their issue with Warwalk Empire before. But if, if those people just kind of watch this, it's amazing how well a lot of the flashbacks integrate into this um and 
flashbacks can be done rather poorly. It's a really strange and inconsistent narrative device, I think. Um, and I know people will have issues with it, with Mad Men especially, um, but it works well here to kind of not fill in gaps, because it doesn't really add more information. It just kind of brings more weight to where Nucky has come from, which seems like an appropriate thing to do for this final season. So um, if you have any interest, or if you had any interest in Borwak Empire and just tuned out, I recommend kind of checking back in for this last somewhat shorter season, because it should be great. You know, these it's still very good writing. The, the amount of talent involved is incredible, um, and I, I endorse support for it. I think for me... I didn't have a chance to catch up with it yet. Um, just like I was hoping to have a preview of Sons of Anarchy for everyone, but again, I just did not have the time. I barely had the time to watch what we, you know, normally review here. Um, but I think because I will not be reviewing it at Sound on Sight this year, our, our games editor Mike Warby is taking over Boardwalk Empire for me. I think it's very likely I will enjoy the show a lot more than when I have to write a weekly review. Um, it's not a show that lends itself particularly well to that format, I don't think, um, unless you're really passionate about the show, that is. Um, so I'm sure Mike's reviews will be great. I look forward to reading them at Sound on Sight. But uh, I will probably, um, well, I know that I will catch up with this season eventually, and certainly by the, before the end of the year. We'll see if it's next week or a couple weeks after that. But uh, I look forward to, to finding out how it all comes together. And certainly, like you say, that time jump, they jump to that to the you know, beginning of uh, beginning of maybe the end of Prohibition in the early 30s. Uh, they do that. They they didn't skip over the death of Rothschild, for example, without reason. So I'm sure that they have a very distinct plan for their end game. So we'll see what that's going to be. But for now, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Next up is the Nick. Where's the dignity? Of course, the show took last week off for Labor Day weekend. Um, and uh, what did you think of this episode? We got a bit of a truce here with the nun and the ambulance driver. Yeah, that was actually the most interesting part of this episode for me. Um, not just because they've turned those two characters into people who have um, slightly complex personal lives and characteristics, but unlike Masters of Sex, I had felt like this subset of characters, other than Algernon, wasn't really working as a group. Um, and now there is an area which I'm really interested in outside of uh, Thackeray and Algernon. So that was important that that was established to some degree because they kind of haven't really been giving um, the woman who's in charge of the whole place really much to do. The stuff that's been going on with the guy who's in debt is just not working at all. So to get these two characters in this situation, I think, really does work. On top of the fact that uh, one of the other surgeons who works with Thackeray, having his father in this episode um, and having that dynamic there where he clearly disapproves of having uh, spent his life trying to give his son all of these chances and for him to want to just be here at the Nick, um, that's actually something that I thought they could get more mileage out of in the next few episodes. Yeah. We'll see uh, where they go with that, but it's, I, I look forward to them exploring it a bit more. I was very glad to see um, get the. I, I actually enjoyed the flashbacks. I was surprised, but I did enjoy the flashbacks. I was glad to get more time with uh, Alice. Right, I want to say it's Alice, his ex. Um, it's such a fascinating and can you imagine months with your hand up like that, just 
strapped up next to your face. I mean, I can't even imagine it, but, um, that, you know, I think that's really fascinating. So I'm glad that she popped back up. Um, and you know, I just, do you, do you feel like they need to be teasing this whole Algernon and the, the, the daughter thing? Because clearly there, there's some relationship. Yes. With the two of them, it seems like that's pretty obvious. Uh, I don't know. It's less obvious for me, but I, well, she's moving now, which is the thing, right? So I don't know. I don't know what I want out of that. I think what they've done with Algernon just in terms of what he's doing with his offices like that has been enough. And to see him go toe to toe with the other surgeons, that was like a great stunt that he pulled. Um, so I don't know if that needs to exist, if it is where it's heading, but, but I didn't really pick up on it um, other than subtext. Yeah, it could be I'm reading into it. Um, and I don't think they need to. I think there's plenty more other interesting stories. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just I was seeing that, but we'll see. Maybe that's just – maybe I just have an inner shipper that I don't realize that, <laughs> that I have uh, with that one. Um, I think it's interesting we haven't seen a return to – do you think he shut down his – his operation in the basement? I hope not. Although, if he wants to maintain what he has, then he probably should. But, uh, yeah, they didn't really address that. So, I guess. It seems like a strange thing to just drop. But, uh, I yeah. mean, given the negative experience he had, maybe he is. Or maybe the show just isn't checking in on it. I will... Mm. We'll see. I don't know. Uh, can you believe the guy? Well, I mean, I guess I can believe the stupid jerk cremating or the guy or stealing his body to be used for medical research and then giving her what? Coal dust. That was the the pygmy, wasn't it? That the uh, the just the um. Or the pig bones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's an asshole and like not a compelling one, which mm -hmm. is unfortunate. So he's kind of just annoying in these episodes, but whatever. Um, and again, I don't know what they're doing with, I think her name's Lucy, whatever the nurse is who's falling around Thackeray. Um, it's just like that first instance in which she had helped with the, the cocaine, um, so that he can get to the hospital I thought was good, but I don't know what they're trying to do with drawing those two together. The show seems to be far more interested in her and in that dynamic than I am. I don't think I know hardly anything about her. So if they want me to care that, you know, what she thinks about him, uh, Thackeray, I, I need to have a better sense of who she is other than someone who's in the background all the time. Yep, I agree. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this one or shall we move on to The Honorable Woman? Let's move on to The Honorable Woman, which had a lot of really good acting in this episode, I thought. Yeah, the line of the episode for me, though, uh, it's a cricket analogy. I don't know. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> That was so great. great. Stephen Ray in this. He's he's so perfect in this role. And it's just his facial expressions, too, where he's just kind of, like, bemused here and there. And mm -hmm. it's just conveyed perfectly. And, yeah, yeah, his conversation with Nessa um, after the events at the beginning were just – it was really solid. And then seeing Nessa blow up on her brother, uh, yeah, it was big acting moments so like what you would expect from you know an emmy reel or something but still ones that worked i thought incredibly well 
I just kept waiting for her. I mean, because, I mean, yeah, he's so convinced that he's the one who got her out. But shouldn't she be convinced that the fact that she was raped got her out? Yeah. Like, she definitely made the deal, right? Yeah. Well, from her perspective, she made the deal. Because he was talking to people who who said that they would get her out if he did this. So it's hard to know. And we saw um, the captors accept her deal. Because we saw, like, the person go and talk to the guy in charge. But then they didn't release her when the, when when the uh, the army raider came in and saved her. The kid was already born, so and was like you know, not freshly born or anything. So it's hard to know exactly who to believe. But I kept waiting for her to come back with no, no. Doesn't mean that he doesn't think he did. But you know, I don't know. Just I I, I enjoy the approach on the show the acting is fabulous i really have, have liked the the writing as well that stephen ray character like you say he's the mvp of this episode um but at a certain point the theme of secrets will are bad and can bring to, i mean it's getting a bit much it's a wonder we can believe anyone right <laughs> whatever the line is whatever the line yeah, is yeah it's, it's dense and ever so slightly does that hurt it in moments but at the same time I could imagine having a lot of fun like doing weekly reviews of this really digging into it because there are a lot of things going on in terms of the layering just of the plot and the fact that they have that going dense though it may be on top of good characters with good actors behind them um, this has been a really, really solid first season or only season, whatever this is for this show. Um, that it's just been surprising that Sundance again can do something quiet-ish, also kind of genre-ish with some thriller elements, but still, I don't know. It's definitely of their brand, and just the quality of it has just been really, especially in the summer, really impressive to witness. Yeah, and it's. I think it's always help. It always helps when you're not necessarily expecting it. And this show came out of nowhere for me, so that certainly doesn't doesn't hurt because then I'm not. It doesn't have the weight of expectation the way that some of these other shows have had, especially in their season twos um, this year. But it's nice to see. It's while it yes, like you say, it is in the brand. This uh, it's it's a bit unexpected, at least for me, because it has that more familiar or straightforward um, thriller element. We had ele- we have we had some of that with Red Road um, from Sundance, but uh, I think this is just much more interestingly uh, developed and nuanced than that one ended up being. Um, so yeah, I, I we got two more episodes, and again, like I said last week, Twitter seems very convinced that the finale of this one is is excellent. So I am excited to see what comes next. I trust Twitter. Twitter usually tells me things that exist and that are true. Yep, that myself as well. Let's move on to uh, Masters of Sex, story of my life. Um, we got finally, finally, the facade comes down when when Ginny says, "This is not about the study. We've been having an affair. It's ridiculous. This is this hasn't been about the study for years." I was very glad to hear that come out. Yeah, and yeah, just that whole last scene, the way that it ends, Bill admitting to to his impotence. Um, 
very powerful stuff because a lot of that has been building for a few episodes, even across big time jumps, which is unusual um, in terms of comparing it to other TV series. And again, surrounded by things that are working really well elsewhere, like Libby's interactions with um, the people who are trying to figure out or trying to get a good eyewitness for the, the crime that's happened. Um, also, everything going on with Lester and how Bill was using him, um, which at first can kind of just seem like a, a manipulative thing to have in there, but we get, I think, good information about his character. He's been very underdeveloped, I guess, and like I, I have a bit of a better understanding of who he is from this episode. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that, and uh, you know, I like this sense because he's been observing this and you know just there was so much nice stuff with him turning the camera away or or just like getting a little bit of the scene with barbara and just seeing her and knowing that he this is no he needs to turn the camera away um and, and just leave which i really appreciated but then just watching him flirt with this idea of of being part of the study or does he does he become part of the study or does he remain an observer because this has been you know a conversation he's been having for the last several episodes of how he's not actually involved in anything he just stands back and watches and so to have him both in this episode leave and not observe with barbara and then request that space again um to not be amongst the data but to to have that distance and um, I thought that was was very telling, and I liked that they that they explored that, however briefly, with him. The having that be what pushes Bill to come out of the impotency closet uh, was nice. Uh, I you know I really like Christian Borrell. Uh He's he was one of the best things about Smash. Whenever they would let Jack Davenport and Christian Borrell have a scene together in the first season. It would always just be dynamite, and it would always be like this. This could be your. You could be. This could be your show. It could be so good, and that's a, that's a big part of what kept me watching that show as long as I did. Um, so I was very glad to see him pop up here. I would have liked, and we got a little bit of that with the magic trick, and a little bit of it with the mention of tap dances. Uh, but I've, Christian Varl is a um, he's a theater guy. He's you know he's got a Tony, and he's just amazing. Uh, but he can, he felt very big when he's up there, uh, talking to, to Bill, but basically to everyone. Um, and yes, he is performing for his brother in that moment. He's clearly, he, he's definitely thought about what he was going to say a lot. Um, but it just felt for me, it didn't quite work as much as I would have liked because it didn't feel as authentic because it felt so theatrical. It felt so over the top. And, and maybe it was because the camera was in so close while the performance was bigger that I, I was disconnecting from him. It felt very much like acting. And while yes, that makes sense for the character, um, that wasn't, it didn't really come across to me well enough in, it wasn't like it was so big that it felt, um, like it contrasted everything else. Like if everything else was more subtle, then it would have felt more natural, I guess, to me to have this be a bigger, more showy performance kind of moment. But instead it felt like this is my Emmy reel moment when, um, and he's a better actor than that. So I don't know exactly where that, 
went wrong, if it's with the performance or with the direction or with the editing. Um, but I was a little disappointed in that scene. What, what, what did you think of that scene? I could not agree with you more. And we've certainly been singing the praises of this second season. Um, but there's always issues, I think, with this, uh, with anything. And um, this was one of the big parts that stood out because it had drawn so much attention to itself. Um, in somewhat of a, of a misfire. So I think it has more to do with the filmmaking aspects of it. Maybe the script, because it was slightly a heightened language, but like you said, that could be attributed to the fact that he had prepared a lot of this beforehand, but still very big in a way that doesn't really fit with how Masters of Sex pulls off some of its more impacting emotional elements. Um, so yeah, again, stood out in a weird way. Um, but great performance, um, oh, great stuff. Uh, and the rest of the episode, I thought uh, about halfway through in my notes, I was like, okay, you know, where is the memory of Lillian DePaul? Cause I felt like it had been missing up until this point. And sure enough, that gets addressed almost immediately after I had, had written it down. Um, so it was nice to see that in, in Jenny's conversation with the therapist. Although I really dislike what she's doing. Like I know why she's doing it. It's morally abhorrent, it's even even though she doesn't seem to understand that. Yeah, it's it's awful. She's trying to help, but it's just no, no. And she <laughs> and I I like that the show is making her both right and wrong. So she's right when she's talking to Bill, of this person needs more help than and not just necessarily the help that we can give her. She needs psychological help. We are not and helping with the physical before she's ready psychologically is not a good idea. And then has her trying to help with the, the, the psychological in a way that she's completely out of her depth, easily is caught could be causing more harm than good. I mean I just don't want Barbara to kill herself or something, trying to, you know, deal with this stuff. I could see it going that way. I mean, not probably not Right, not maybe not now because this is next week is going to be the finale, and it seems like that would not necessarily be the way that they would end this season. But um, yeah, I just I, I'm worried. I'm worried about Barb. I want to have yeah. uh, Betsy Brandt on my TV for longer, and um, especially it's a very interesting uh, arc, and I think they're handling it really well. So. Um, but it's it's very naughty. It's very difficult. And so to, you know, I, I'm hoping that it's going to can either continue into next season. But if it's not, then I'm I'm looking. I'm worried about there being some tragedy next week. I don't know. What do you think? I well, it's it's amazing to see after the introduction of that character where she has been taken because I would not have expected that at all. Um. I don't necessarily know if I'm expecting tragedy, although I don't. I also don't know how to utilize Barbara after this is resolved, whatever that resolution is. I don't know how she fits in after that. So it should be a short stay on Masters of Sex, I would assume. Um, one little detail I wanted to mention about that uh, that really stuck out well uh, was in that. I guess for me, was in that conversation with the three of them, uh, Bill, Virginia, and, and Barbara, when they're prepping her. Just how Bill acts, just who he is, he's a very cold, matter-of-fact person. Um, certain patients will react to that 
in one way, others will react in a very different way. I thought just as a viewer, like as she was kind of being very emotional about all of this and he was just straightforwardly asking questions, that to me makes me calm as a patient, I would think. And so it was great to to see that he wasn't like worsening the situation or antagonizing it in any way. So I he probably wasn't actively trying to, to help her in that way, but it, it worked out from my perspective. But I could see how other people would want the exact opposite from their doctor in that case. Yeah, and to see different approaches to that I think is nice. And uh, yeah, and I think they've done that. So it's just they haven't approached anything nearly as complicated or as thorny as this yet, I would say. I mean, even the first season, what, what, you know, what they did with Alice um, uh, and Janney, and Bo Bridges, uh, that character was cha- it was challenging, but I mean I don't think it's anywhere near this scale, and so to have uh, that come into play, I think here was fitting, and, and just and the, just it sh- highlights how well the two Mark Masters and Johnson play off of each other because they really do have their patients covered with one approach or the other. They're, one of the two of them is going to you know be able to help. The, ease the patient's uh, concerns or at least, you know, try to help get through to them in the best way, whether or not that the other one is aware <laughs> that they need to take a different approach uh, remains to be seen. But uh, I mean, would I would kind of, I kind of feel like they might do another time jump and to get to um, Ginny's having her degree. Do you think they're going to do something like that? Unpredictable is where the show has left itself after this season, I think. So I could see that. Although I, if I were Jenny, like these early um, experiences dabbling in it might put me off a little bit, but uh, that would be useful, I think, in terms of plot. And you shouldn't necessarily make those decisions just for plot's sake, but in some cases it could really help other elements. So I, I could see that, yeah. Well, even just... Um... We didn't want to have to see Libby go through fertility treatments or Bill again, so they just skipped over that because that happened, but then we don't have to see it. And at a certain point, um, we're not going to want to see more of Ginny being like, psychology is important, you know. Uh, At a certain point, we're going to be like, yeah, yeah, we know this (laughs) because we are living in a post, uh, that sort of breakthrough time. Uh, So... I would not be surprised by that um, if they don't, because there's a lot of time to play with. If they don't want to do that, I just, I guess I hope that they quickly shift so we don't keep having these same conversations. But I do think I really enjoyed that scene um, with Virginia opening up a little bit about Lillian. And I hope she sees the value in this herself and is able to, um, is able to, to, start exploring some elements of her personality. I mean, we saw it already with, uh, when she ran into that bow and didn't remember his name or that he didn't have kids. Uh, we already saw some reflection from her there, but I'm hoping, I guess we'll see a little bit more for, for now. Let's move on to our last episode of this week in drama. And that's the leftovers, the prodigal son returns. And, uh, how about that third act? Yeah. Okay. Nothing happened. So it was really boring. Um, so uneventful. <laughs> I don't. I like like I've been having difficulty all season. I have difficulty talking about this show. Would you agree that story 
and characters are the two most important things with television series or with long-form dramatic series, I should say. I think it, it depends on how you watch television and I think um, a lot of shows, there, there are different approaches to take and they're very show specific. In general, for me, as the type of viewer I am, I always care about character the most and then story yeah. and then what comes next. So I am always much more interested in character. I know there that's why I like the shows that I like and other shows uh, value. For example, like Sleepy Hollow, there's a lot of character there as well, but they also have a really breakneck pace or uh, particular seasons of vampire diaries and true blood also have really benefited f benefited from that sort of energy and pace and, and churning through plot and really getting that uh energy and excitement in, in not less in the characters though obviously with some of that there but more with its story um but for for me i always go end up going to character and i think i shared the same uh preferences so character first then story and then depend on the show certain elements after that i feel like mm, the majority of the time i've connected with the story in the leftovers it's been it was immediately uh compelling and the way that this ends i think is really wonderful in some ways so once we see uh nora walk in on the figures of her family and then everything that happens afterwards um i just the way that they were able to tie all of the subplots together in a way that didn't feel like the story collapsed, um, it was impressive and also um, engaging emotionally in, in certain ways, I think. I think it was the characters, though, that were the issues for me in, in that, like when Garvey is talking to reverend and kind of breaking down about what's happened um it's more like i'm watching these events occur i'm watching the story unfold rather than i'm watching a character who i have a connection with um reach a really pivotal moment so there was a disconnect there i guess and yet the finale still worked in that that last act like you said i think still had as much impact as it was trying to have yeah i think some stuff came together in that last act that um that really worked and um and then but but i also in general i was still left cold by the episode it seems like there's uh at least where i the reviews i usually read the people the critics that i follow seem to almost universally love this one and i more just appreciated it uh what it was doing i think justin throws been strong all season and i thought he was strong here i really liked what we got um, the sort of dream sequence or you can make sure there are people with theories, especially with Lindelof's involvement of like sideways reality or whatever. But um, for me, it's a dream sequence that was effective and, um, and interesting. Having Wayne pop back up was interesting, um, but I still don't care about the remnant. And um, I, that's still, I mean, I guess this notion of forcing people to remember was seemed to be effective, I guess, for Nora, but it didn't seem like that pushed her to some new realization so much as it caused her to retreat back to where she had been. So she had made progress and, and it, it felt like that was presented as legitimate progress, not as her running away from herself. 
um, which is then what this finale presents it as, or it's what she says at least. Um, so I guess I, I just don't understand like that, that climax was very effective with the, the fire and, and all of that. And as soon as, um, I saw, we saw what exactly they were doing where they just, I mean, I also have issues with how did they break into all these people's houses in this town? I mean, just the, the logistics of that. I'm sitting here going like, there's no way, there's no way that they just break into everyone's house and this, they're not brought up on charges. They got trained by Hannibal Lecter. I mean, because like, they, they've been doing that all season. They've been breaking into people's house and taking their pictures of their of their loved ones. And so the notion of that never being followed up on or never coming up was annoying to me earlier in the season. And then having this giant climax of that is even more so. I just don't believe, I just don't believe that they'd be able to do it. So there's that, which is distracting. Um, but it's like, are they trying to get themselves killed? Because it seems like that's what they want here more than anything else. I mean, it was it's sadistic and affecting with an A, you know, very affecting. But I don't really understand. I still it still doesn't work for me. I guess as much as the fire and the result of that did really work for me, um, them as a as a house or as a movement or whatever that still doesn't work for me at all um it's nice to get amy brenneman out of there because clearly she's gonna do something else next season which is good um i didn't really again i didn't really understand necessarily her involvement with that all season uh i guess that makes Liv tyler the leader now because she's the most famous actor in the house even though she's so new uh who knows um but yeah i'm just i'm not connected with that guilty run myself at all um i also am not connected with the sun at all they i think they've really failed with tommy all season and and then you know the stuff we got with wayne was really fascinating i thought uh patterson joseph is excellent so that helps his his final scene was fantastic i thought um but i didn't care about tommy and i didn't really care about goodness what's her name starts with the c right christine christine yes and so that just felt very con- like a series of contrivances to get to the point where there's a baby left on the Garvey's door doorstep that for Nora to find so that she doesn't leave town um, rather than something more meaningful. So, uh, yeah, it's just the overall, you know, the, the stuff that's worked for me this season has been the very character specific stuff. It's been anything with Nora. It's been pretty much anything with Matt, the Chris Reckleson character. Um, Jill and her friends, that stuff has worked for me, but there are entire swaths of the show that just haven't, um, as much as I appreciate the different actors. So I'm hoping, um, cause I will still keep watching next season because when the show nails an episode like guest, it nails an episode. Um, so I guess I'm hoping that maybe they'll have a new approach in the next season that will that will work for me a little better or that, you know, having done this legwork, there's more interesting ways that they're going with Tommy and with the wife and some of these other characters. Um, yeah, I guess it's, I, so I have a very conflicted, <laughs> we talked about this last week, I have a very conflicted relationship with the leftovers. I don't I mean the, there are a couple episodes that could end up on my top 10 or 20 of the year, but I don't expect the show as a whole to end up there for me. And I know for some, a lot of people, a lot of other critics, it will, or they feel like it will now at least. Um, but I feel like a, kind of like with True Detective for me, uh, I feel like this is one that's going to fade. Whereas uh, The Americans and uh, and Rectify and some other shows haven't 
over the course of uh, the months since they've ended. What What about you? Yeah, I don't. I don't want it to seem like a hive mind because I, I like when we have slightly different opinions. But it really does seem like almost all of the other critics like this a whole lot more than we do, and and vice versa with Masters of Sex. Um, there are just big things that don't work, like you said. The the best, the closest it got to really getting there for me in this was um, finally getting Jill's mom, Garvey's ex, like the, the struggle to get out one word just to say her daughter's name because she's been not talking for so long. Um, but big gaps, I think. And yeah, the Tommy thing was a massive dud. So hopefully there's something that that can be really interesting there for the second season, which, like you said, definitely keep watching. There's way too much talent, there's too, too much raw talent involved in this. Um, and it's so beautifully crafted that it would be foolish to, to not check in again, I think, and to see if those pieces can be drawn together well. So I'll, I'll definitely do that. But... Yeah, it, it kind of does seem like it's going to fade, um, which is unfortunate and sad. But again, the highlights are big. So the the two kind of very self-contained episodes, um, I think, remain right now at least two of the better episodes of the year. So that's it's weird that you can get to those really, really high peaks and be somewhat uh, underwhelming for the rest of the season. Yeah, and... Um... I mean, the the fact that it's, I expect, I mean, and who knows, but I expect this is one that won't really stay, stick with me. That's because there's so much other great TV over the course of the year. I mean, that's a good problem to have. Um, and the other thing I'll say about this finale, uh, other people seem to have connected much more strongly with the use of music in this. Whereas for me, I'm like, oh, really? This is a cello, nothing else matters? Really? We're doing this, guys? This is what... <laughs> As a Metallica fan, I, I appreciated it. Yeah, and then there was another song that was used. Oh, oh, I mean, I love Nina Simone. Nimikitapa was... Okay, I'll give him that one. That was great. Very glad to see... I mean, I, when that song came up, I was like, yeah, I like the song. I don't know how effective it is if that's what I'm thinking when they're using it. But uh, certainly the Metallica was not like a transcendent moment for me, the way it seems like it was for other people. So maybe there's elements there, too, that are kind of taking me out of it i still we still haven't seen that dry cleaner again we haven't seen him apologize to the dry cleaner and i care about stuff like that way more (laughs) than you know and and like i'm also watching this going this funeral scene is really really strong and i'm watching that go like great performances interesting choice of the book of job there and there's no way they bury they're burying her deep enough she's gonna get dug up like that, that that's what i'm thinking when i'm watching this and that's a problem so uh, I don't know. We'll see where it winds up at the end of the year when I do my overly exhaustive list of rankings and stuff. But uh, but for now, what wins your week in drama this week and genre? I should say. Um, I don't. I don't even know. I guess to be boring, it'll be Masters of Sex. But definitely a strong episode of The Honorable Woman. And again, a lot of things that I really did like about this leftovers finale. It's just. Um, strengthening my opinion about it being a little bit too inconsistent in parts. Yeah, um, I'm going to give it to... I liked... You know, the the two that stick out in my mind for this week are The Nick and The Honorable Woman. Um, and I just keep going back to Stephen Ray's performance from Honorable Woman. So I, I think I'm going to give it to that one this week. And we'll see what happens next week. I mean, parts of the Leftovers finale absolutely would take it. But if I'm looking at the whole 
what, what was I more engaged in right now? It's that. So we'll see how, you know, next week we have, uh, next week has the season finale of Masters of Sex. The week after that has the season finale of Honorable Woman. The week after that has the mid-season finale of Outlander. I mean, there's, you're, oh, and uh, the week that has Honorable Woman finale also has You're the Worst and Mary finale. So we're getting really to the end of a lot of these shows, their seasons, or at least their, you know, their fall finales. So uh, it's, 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 it's a time of change in the TV landscape. And um, <laughs> yeah, I still think that the spring has it, though, for strength of of shows all at once, like winter to mm-hmm. spring. I think they still got it yeah. trumped. It's crazy because there were like several weeks, I think, in a row where it was Hannibal, the Americans, Mad Game Man. of Thrones, and Mad Men, like yeah. all at the same time. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's we're very spoiled in that time of the year, I think. Yeah. Well, uh, a few show notes here before we go to the Make You Watchathon, which is going to be so much fun coming up shortly here. Uh, you can find a post up at soundonsite.org for this episode where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound on Sight, uh TV and, and the Televerse and the two of us. You can, also, uh, you can also write us a review if you'd like. Be like Jason and leave us a review in iTunes. We have both an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And again, if you do leave us a review in another country, a uh, different version of iTunes, let us know because otherwise we don't. Also, of course, uh, you can reach us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and you are? At Sean Coletti. And again, Sean, I know I said it earlier, but it's been an absolute pleasure having you uh, as my co-host this summer. But for now, uh, let's take a break and come back with the Make You Watch-a-thon animation edition. <laughs> Samurai Jack, Frisky Dingo, and Amazing Screw-On-Head. We'll be right back after this. Long ago in a distant land, I, Aku, the shape-shifting master of darkness, unleashed an unspeakable evil. But a foolish samurai warrior wielding a magic sword stepped forth to oppose me. Before the final blow was struck, I tore open a portal in time and flung him into the future, where my evil is law. Now the fool seeks to return to the past and undo the future that is ours. This is Kate Kalzik, joined by my fantastic co-host, Mr. Sean Cletty, and returning from a summer in the wilderness, that's Simon Howell. Gentlemen, it is that time of the year. It is the anniversary show, which means it is time for the Televerse Make You Watch-a-thon. Um, and it only seemed right to include all of the Televerse co-hosts on this. So we're doing the first three-part, three-person Make You Watch-a-thon, and it's the Make You Watch Thon 3 Animation Edition. I'm pretty stoked about this. Boosh. <laughs> uh, 
I am very much looking forward to this. Well, we're going to kick things off, uh, Sean, with your pick. So why don't you let the listeners know about uh, what you have made Simon and myself watch? I have made the two of you watch um, what is not only, in my opinion, one of the best American animated series of all time, but also something that I would pick uh, for various reasons, one of just the best TV series of all time, and that is uh, Samurai Jack, created by Gandhi Tarkovsky. Now, this is one that I watched while it was airing, um, which, you know, it's really fun because I, I definitely watched a bunch of this while it was on. When did it premiere? It was premiered in 2001, yeah. Yeah, so I watched this sort of uh, in in high school um I, I, I just I'm guessing repeats on adult you know, on Cartoon Network kind of thing. Um, but I I remembered Samurai Jack. I remembered that it was awesome and it had a lot of really great action and that the main character was really cool. I did not remember the time travel and the basic premise apparently. So I must have like sort of come in and out and just seen a lot of the badass action scenes and not actually followed the narrative. So when I was watching the premiere, I was like wait, he gets sent forward in time and that's the entire premise? I did not remember that and I'm a terrible TV fan, clearly. I That's okay for me, even as a big fan of the show. It's weird because we were talking earlier about The Leftovers and how I had mentioned that story and characters are kind of the two things that I gravitate to when it comes to TV series and Samurai Jack is just so the opposite. The reason that I hold it in such high esteem uh, is much more for its technical qualities and a lot of the things that it does as um, I wouldn't say a kid's cartoon but a cartoon aimed or skewed much younger than adults just straight adults who watch you know network dramas or something like that Um, and how it it challenges a lot of the expectations of a kind of show like that so I'm I'm fine that you don't remember the plot. (laughs) Uh, Simon were you familiar with Samurai Jack? No, I did see, of course, uh, Tartakovsky is also responsible for Dexter's Laboratory, which I definitely caught up uh, quite a bit of when I was a kid, but I'd never seen one frame of Samurai Jack before. And I'm really, really glad, Sean, to hear you say that this is one of your favorite series in spite of its plot and characters, because what terrified me about the show was the notion that I was going to come in and say, plot and characters are thin and it lacks much subtext. And then you were going to come in and elucidate for me what the brilliant subtext of the show was. So I'm glad you're apparently not about to do that and make me feel really dumb. <laughs> I, I could mention some things about character uh, and story. The, the one thing that I usually point to with this one is that I always have issues with um, very traditional antagonists, uh, villains, especially in superhero stories where a lot of the time it's just straight evil, evil for evil's sake. This occurs a lot in video games as well. I think Sephiroth from Final Fantasy VII is a really clear example of this, somebody who's very popular but doesn't really have much depth to him. Uh, And yet, despite that, despite the fact that Samurai Jack is very much good versus evil with Jack and Aku, it's, it's one that somehow engages me in many ways and a lot of that has to do with some of the episodes that we get of his past and just to kind of see how high the stakes are here with good versus evil um but there's there's not too much subtext so there's nothing really that i could elucidate beyond that well and to echo what you were saying before about the visual 
uh, sort of, I guess the, I, more broadly, the aesthetic aspects of the show, they're definitely the reason to watch it. The in particular, and this is something that's carried over from other uh, Tarkovsky stuff that I've seen, the way that he'll um, switch aspect ratios or just divide the frame two, three, four, twenty-seven times uh, within the same image uh, never stops being engaging. Mostly because it's the sort of thing that basically nobody else does. This is besides the fact that the animation style itself is just sort of inherently gorgeous, and the voice work is interesting. I think the, the I think the reason that Aku gets to be a more interesting villain than sort of he deserves to be based on the way he's written is because the voice work is so weirdly nuanced and mischievous and sort of suggests an inner life we don't really get to see. So there's sort of a more interesting show hiding somewhere between the frames. Yeah, when you talk about um, the vocal performance, I do think they are very... Um, these are characters, the central characters, I would say, of Jack and Aku, who, they're not big talkers. They're, you know, Jack is a man of action. He's not going to give a long soliloquy. And so that really lends itself to the aesthetics of the show, the the approach with, you know, the, when you talk about the split of the screen, that very much reminded me of, of a comic book feel. Obviously, I'm not a big comics person, but that's immediately what I go to. There's certainly very, uh, many other elements or, or um, inspirations here. And it seems like, and again, every time it comes up on the televerse, on the DVD shelf, I show what a complete... Uh, uh, noob I am at this topic, but there seems to be anime inspiration in uh, certainly in the fight sequences with the, where you have um, these characters like running at each other for forever <laughs> uh, before jumping and leaping into these badass things. Um, but I was really struck in the episodes that I watched, at least many of the episodes I watched uh, were, were very much dominated by action because, and that fits again with the character because Jack is a man of action. He's not a man of words and speeches at least that's my take on the character what do you think sean it's one of the most impressive aspects of this and, and again this is going back to the subversion of expectations for a show like this is that you spend so much time in these episodes without a dialogue uh as early well even in three-part premiere there's plenty of um sequences that are dialogue free but especially in very early on in the first season jack and uh, the three blind archers where he is training his senses, and it's just all very visual and not much going on uh, auditorily or orally. Um, and it's it's that that you wouldn't expect somebody young watching this live to be like, oh, this is awesome, because you kind of want your characters to speak. There's even episodes like The, the Birth of Evil um, in which Jack doesn't feature at all. So to not even get your main character um, might be alarming to some degree but it works so well because he, Tartakovsky clearly had an aesthetic that he was going for here and it seems like he, he got to do everything that he wanted uh, and yeah those, like Simon said uh, those aspect ratios those cuts uh, are hugely important in many episodes and even when they're not important to conveying something um, I guess they kind of just still look nice mm -hmm. in the most basic way well, and when you talk about the the lack of dialogue so frequently, that actually, I, what I was not noting, at least um, in, in a handful of the episodes I watched, I mean, even if you just look at the first, the the pilot, the three-part pilot or opening story um, setting up, you know, Jack's journey to the future, the, the use of music, I thought, was really interesting. So we have um, 
very little uh, present or, or or showy sort of uh, scoring until he gets into the club um, after he's gone through the portal, that is, so in part two, uh, until he goes into the club and then the, the same thumping, techno-y kind of club music is there throughout the dialogue scene, throughout the action scene. And then in part three, we get this extended, like at least a third of the episode, is this giant battle and there's no music. There's no sound. And when we're talking about, you know, the, the visual storytelling and the fact that there's these long stretches with no dialogue, I mean, the way I imagine that happening, probably not true, but uh, I'm going to humor myself here is I imagine the original teleplays being full of dialogue, you know, in these sections where people are reacting to stuff, especially, oh, no, what do I do now? I'll do this. If, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you can imagine all these sort of hand-holdy bits of dialogue that really aren't necessary, and it's almost as though Tartakovsky and company took a standard cartoon teleplay and just slashed five-sixths of the dialogue. And I imagine it would actually be really difficult to watch another kid, another sort of, more standard kid show right after or before Samurai Jack because you would notice just how much of the dialogue you really don't need. I definitely agree with that. And, and yet there are some episodes, there are different kinds of Samurai Jack episodes, certainly. A lot of these, um, there'll be one-off homages to various genres or um, various inspirations. There's a 300 rip-off episode that actually works rather well. Um, there are more classic adventure ones. There's one based on the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, it, there's a lot of Raymond Chandler influence in a few episodes. Uh, and what those various influences allow for are certain characters like the Scotsman to pop up. And then you do get great exchanges of dialogue. So that, the fact that there's very little dialogue used, that the scripts, like you said, um, are probably slashed quite a bit, it makes the the few longer exchanges of dialogue really pop and most of the time they pop well. And in the Scotsman case, uh, I think at least in his first episode, I'm less enamored with his second appearance. Um, that's, that that's a great example of that working. Well, I mean, even, even just an episode like um, the uh, tale of X nine in season four, and that's uh, one of the last episodes of the series. It reminded me very strongly of, uh, especially the, the, an the animation style, the opening reminded me very strongly of the opening of Cowboy Bebop and of a couple of their animes that I've seen. Um, and it's, it's very noir inspired. It's, it, their whole, the whole thing is, uh, is, is noir with voiceover and like dialogue throughout, you know, just, omnipresent narration but it really really works it was you know really uh fun digression and a d different approach for an episode so to see you know that would be one that i would point out as you say as an exercise in genre or in style and it's always fun to watch a show be willing especially an animated show be willing to take uh just a left turn for an episode like that and actually the at least in my viewing i i watched a list a, a short list of episodes supplied supplied to us by mr coletti and it was sort of those stylistic digression episodes that, in general, I was more enamored with, like uh, the episode you just mentioned, as well as I was, to be honest, expecting the Haunted House episode to be kind of lame, you know, sort of Scooby-Dooey. And it's really, really not. It's actually really, really creepy. And the shift in animation style is really stunning. 
I, I'm really glad that you brought that one up. Yeah, because I remember the very first time watching that as well. Um, that I thought, oh, this is this is going to be kind of dumb, and there's not much to the haunted house. Yeah, as soon as you get to that dinner scene, things take a turn, and then it gets rather creepy, and then the animation shifts, and that's one of my favorite fight scenes in all of the series. Um, it's so bare, so stylistic, and so really jarringly frightening, um, because there aren't many creepy episodes of Samurai Jack. You get creepy moments here or there, but none of them are nearly on that level. So that's that episode is a very big highlight, especially of that season. Are there any other uh, particular episodes that you'd like to, to mention, Sean or Simon? Uh, you mentioned Tale of X-9. That's definitely a fan favorite, I think, and one of the best ones, in my opinion. Um, not just for the, the genre stuff that you mentioned, but also because of how it turns Jack kind of into the antagonist of that episode. Um, we've seen him slice through robots the entire series, and so to get the perspective of somebody who was given emotions, and it it really will depend on the viewer whether or not they get tired of you know hearing him talk about the dog um, sweet thing, <laughs> but it if it doesn't irk the viewer, then it works incredibly well. And it's, it's very easy, I think, to buy into that and to, to feel something uh, on a, a slightly deeper level during that episode. Something like you would in some of the the um, mythology episodes of Cowboy Bebop, even. Well, and I think it's just having it be the dog instead of, you know, the, what what you would expect from... The, what we get with the narration and everything. Uh, I just really appreciated that. It really worked for me because it just, again, it's a subversion of what we're expecting and it shows self-awareness on their part uh, in a way that I really appreciated. So yeah, that that really worked for me. And I, could, I guess I could see how it wouldn't for other people, but that was, was, that was, I think, my favorite episode that I saw. I think I would agree with that. It's, it's the Jurassic Bark of Samurai Jack, really. Mm. That's fair. Yeah, oh. absolutely. Although, in a way, it's one of those great episodes that points to, at least for me, sort of the limitations of the show in general, because it does have that other dimension where, like you said, Jack is, is sort of not the hero of that episode. And that's really interesting. And it sort of, again, hints at this at these this other whole realm of possibilities for the show that it generally doesn't probe at all, which is sort of, you know, disappointing for me because I love that stuff. But I also recognize it's a kid's show. The, the only other one that I would mention, and I didn't put this uh, on the list that I had sent both of you, but if you are interested in checking out some of um, the, the stronger episodes from season four, uh, the fourth episode of that, the Aku infection, um, kind of a silly premise to begin with. You know, Aku is ill, so he can't fight that day, uh, and somehow Jack uh, manages to get his illness and kind of gets taken over. But uh, the as it progresses from kind of silly um, into something a little bit more serious, you begin to see uh, kind of the whole buildup of the series. And that's something that we've not mentioned, that uh, this got stopped before it could conclude fully. So there's never really that final battle between Jack and Aku. But that was an episode that by the end of it uh, really brought everything full circle. We get to see all of uh, the people the clans, the species that Jack has helped up to that point in a very emotional moment near the end. Um, and so, again, those moments when you can buy into the good versus evil and the good triumphs, um, it's, it's very powerful. 
the last thing I think I'll mention for Samurai Jack um, is that I just absolutely love the design uh, of the series in general, but specifically the clean uh, lines for Jack and the uh, the design for Aku. I think is just fantastic. Such a, a fun and a creative and for me memorable uh, character design, creature design. Um, yeah, and especially when you look at the the clean lines of of Jack, and there's all the curves of Aku that really, you know, that that contrast really worked for me. Um, any final thoughts on on uh, Samurai Jack, Simon? Uh, no, I just just to sort of sum up for me, uh, as with Sean, definitely more of an aesthetic pleasure than anything else. Not enough to make it sort of one of my all-time faves, as with Sean, but I definitely appreciated uh, what I saw, and I do think its peaks are uh, are really no- are quite notable. John, any final thoughts? Uh, you mentioned the the lines. I'll just say that uh, the music, uh, not just the the scoring that we get during the episodes, but the theme song, which uh, has been played already, but is I didn't even know that William contributed to it as I was watching live. I didn't know that until after the fact when i had gone through it a second time but very catchy uh and very appropriate to the show being anachronistic so that is a big thumbs up for me definitely always love creative music choices and so that was yeah that's one that gets under your it gets in your ear after a while it doesn't when you see the poster and then you hear the theme song you don't it doesn't necessarily fit your expectations, but the more you sit with the show, the more and more sense it makes. So, yeah, certainly I see where you're coming from with that. Well, now we're going to take a break, and we'll come back with Simon's pick right after this. Next up on the Make You Watchathon three is Simon's pick. So, Simon, what did you have us watch? All right, this is Frisky Dingo, which, considering the creative pedigree behind it, it's a little bit more obscure than you might expect. It comes from co-creators Adam Reed and Matt Thompson, who previous to this uh, created Sea Lab twenty twenty one, cult Adult Swim series, of course, one of their earliest sort of big hits that ran for quite a while. And after it, they made Archer, which ended up being their real meal ticket. This was a bit of an oddity that aired in between, and it ran for two seasons of 25 episodes. It also produced a two-episode spinoff called The Exticles. We may get to that later. Uh, And it's what I think is so interesting about the show is that if you've seen Sea Lab 2021, you know that show is just, it's right down sort of the Adult Swim 1.0 alley of pure stoner humor no continuity uh you know characters can die and come back the next episode they can have an entire episode that is just an exterior shot of of the sea of of sea lab with voices over top uh etc etc and we know what archer's like and frisky dingo is sort of somewhere in between where it is 100 percent serialized which i think it may be the first totally serialized show that Adult Swim ever did. 
Uh, I'm not sure. I I guess it started after Venture Brothers, but still, uh, it, it's almost impossible not to watch from the beginning because there's not just in-jokes that reverberate throughout, uh, but a relatively coherent plot that, at least from each beginning to end of season, you kind of need to be watching from the beginning to follow at all. Uh, that being said, I'll be curious to, to hear what you guys have to say because it is quite a bit cruder and, um, yeah, cruder than <laughs> even Archer. So, uh, Kate, let's start with you because I, I know that, that we have both really enjoyed Archer historically on uh, on the Televerse. So how, how did you feel about Frisky Dingo? Well, I think I just... Uh... Does that just escalate over the course of the series? I mostly saw earlier episodes. So does that just escalate or have I just been scarred by the other stuff I've watched? Because didn't, it didn't really stand out to me that much. In terms of crudity? Yeah. Um, I would say that it's a little bit different because I think Archer, especially watching Frisky Dango again, Archer, I think, benefits from operating in a universe that is sort of vaguely similar to our own, except for, you know, the robots, uh, which, you know, we do have robots. Uh, Frisky Dingo takes place in a totally wild universe. And by the end of season two, things do get a little bit more out of hand. Uh, but, but I do think there's sort of a nasty, there's a sort of a nastier edge to the humor on Frisky Dingo than we get for, even from the nastiest bits of Archer. And I think, I think that does escalate particularly with some of the developments in early season two, but, um, so, so yeah, now I, I, I'm going to have to watch some of the, you know, some of the, the later stuff that I missed, uh, to kind of see where, where you're coming from with that. Uh, cause now I'm intrigued. Um, but the, the thing that made this an interesting and at times challenging viewing experience for me, uh, I really enjoyed kill face, um, but I had a hard time in getting into Xander Cruz, uh, because it, he really does feel like Archer 1.0. Like they haven't quite figured the character out. He's so similar in so many ways to Archer. And I just think Archer, because probably because I'm so much fami more familiar with that show and really have enjoyed it quite a lot over its run. Um, I, so, so I just, I feel like Archer, the character is funnier and works better. And so this sort of feels like a dry run for a character I'm going to like better once they work out some kinks. And so that was distracting for me. Um, and I'm fully aware that that is a me thing. That is not <laughs> this show's fault. Um, but that was, it was somewhat distracting for me. Uh, so I was able to to get a lot more fun out of what the time I spent with uh, with Killface than, than with Xander. I had not seen any Frisky Dingo previously. I had heard of it. Because of that Frisky Dingo call, a shout out that they did on Archer, uh, I want to say a couple seasons ago, but I actually was not familiar with it at all. So this was uh, this is interesting, like you say, progression. I've seen a very little C Lab, um, and of course all of Archer. So it was it, you can kind of see a little bit of of like you were saying, Simon. You can see a little bit of those two worlds kind of come together here. Um, Sean, had you seen any Frisky Dingo? I had seen just one episode. A couple of my friends have really been pushing this on me because they know I'm an Archer fan, and they're of the opinion that this is a better show, so they wanted me to see this. I never got around to it past the first episode. Um, but yeah, I got through, I think I just missed maybe the last uh, three or four episodes of, of the second season, uh, but I'd seen, I've seen up until then, and it's you call it a dry run for that character, and I, I would definitely 
agree with that. And yet the reason that I think um, that Xander works better for me is because of having Killface as the other co-lead. And you don't really get that so much with Archer. There are a lot of important characters in Archer, and you could call somebody um, like Mallory or Lana uh, or even Pam in the last season a co-lead, but not to this level. So getting Killface and Xander is at sometimes um, uh, points of comparison and sometimes points of contrast, I think, work really well to kind of make me not think about that as much. And this, uh, the crudity was fine with me. Um, it, was it much more crude? I would say definitely, yeah. It, it wasn't significant, but this is a, a more crude show than Archer, and I guess that makes sense being Adult Swim versus FX, um, but it, it was hilarious. I was laughing out loud through most of this, and uh, even in, in the Exticles, which we might talk about later, um, it's just Adam Reed is so intelligent. His writing is layered. His reference uh, capacity is ridiculous. I, I don't think I've encountered any other TV writer who has had at least some understanding or familiarity in so many different subjects. And so it's great to be able to, to get some of those when you can. Uh, and it, it doesn't really ruin the experience if you don't, much like Archer. Well, and you, you talk about his, uh, his intelligence, which I would say is not even, like there's not the same uh, amount of, for instance, literary references as there are in Archer, but there are definitely quite a lot of arcane pop culture references. There's a, a running gag about the movie Vera Drake in one episode of all films, Mike Lee's Vera Drake, uh, that really gets to me. But at the same time, he's the sort of guy who's not afraid to throw in a, a joke like, it's like throwing a hot dog through a town. <laughs> 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 Which is just, you. That that's an unfuck-upable joke, and he, he knows not to resist it. Um... And, you know, while we're talking about Xander Cruz versus Archer, I think, A, uh, Sean, you're right to, to point out that there is no corollary for the Killface, Xander, or Barnaby relationship, uh, which which has at least eight or nine different permutations over the course of these 25, we forgot to mention, 11-minute episodes. Uh, again, this is a completely serialized show where the episodes are 11 minutes long. I'm not sure if that's ever happened before or since probably it hasn't it's not occurring to me but even that in itself is insane there are recaps but they're mostly pretty pointless uh, as befits adult swim the other thing of course is that unlike archer and you may you may kate chuck this up to be him being a less developed character but you know archer is on some level kind of a good person sometimes and is kind of good at his job quite a bit of the time and uh, Xander, there is none. There's no room for competency in the world of Frisky Dingo, where, with a couple of rare exceptions, everyone is an idiot, everyone is arrogant, and everyone is out for everything. And there's really no room for even that sort of bare thread of sentimentality that we get on Archer. This is by this is a much less, uh, a much more ruthless show, I should say, especially when it gets to season two. Uh, wherein, spoiler alert, the two main characters oppose each other in a presidential race. 
Yeah. Well, and I think when you, again, when you compare to Archer, having that 22 a minute episode versus 11 makes a big difference. And the other significant differences there, there is, uh, of course, Mallory. Uh, so we get to see how uh, Archer became Archer because that was his mother, uh, which really uh, puts him in context. Um, and, you know, even even just with the flashbacks we get for, for Archer, that goes a long way towards smoothing some of those he's a dick edges. Um, and there's none of that with, with Xander. Um, because obviously his parents were killed when he was, was young in a delightful, fun uh, nod to, to, to Bruce Wayne. I gotta say, for me, the bits that were the most entertaining uh, through this were usually the the most ridiculous and most pointless recurring bits. I think I laughed. I think every single time that Simon nudged those that cereal off his off the counter. Every single time, it's such a stupid little thing. But I always laughed. I I, I appreciate the timing uh, uh, on this show, which is also similar to to, to some of the timing on Archer. Um, but yeah, just that you know, like those little bits of character relationship between Kelface and his son, or some of these other characters. That's what really got to me a lot of the times. If you wanted to, you could write a thesis paper about the show's use of the comic pause, which. I, I sw- there is at least, I don't know, three to seven instances per episode of characters interrupting each other and then pausing for anywhere from five to 15 seconds, only to come up with the perfect moment to come back with the perfect word or phrase. And I don't know, Reed and Thompson really got it down to a science, especially just you can see, sort of see that evolve over the course of, of the season. I would say it's even more advanced than what we get on Archer for some reason. And I, I would completely agree with that, which is so interesting. And, and I would point to probably the running length uh, of Frisky Dingo versus Archer being a part of that, where well, often in Archer you get those pauses before a commercial break. Um, either it will be the punchline and then you'll go to commercial break or it'll just be the pause and then the commercial break. And they just work better here in Frisky Dingo because it, there's no really room to mess around with that too much. It, they do have it down to an exact science. And I think that you're right, um, that it's just perfect here. And those are some of the funniest moments. Um, but there are so many, uh, help me out here. Sam, who's the, the penguin character? What's his name? Oh my God! Um, I don't remember its name right now, but in the, Baby the Lamont, conceit, Baby yes. Lamont, thank you. I'm oh God, how glad you, you had that. Comedy out of that. <laughs> for for those who haven't seen Frisky Dingo, uh, who who would like to explain Baby Lamont here? Oh God! So the conceit, the the, the show's plot is not important, so I'm going to spoil it. The conceit of the second season is that Killface essentially solve global warming when his doomsday device malfunctioned. So he decides to run for president and his mascot is baby Lamont, a a little penguin who represents his global warming victory. And yeah, it, it's, it, it ends up being this incredible sort of comic prop for about, I don't know, at least a dozen amazing setups. Oh, and uh, Lamont is uh, super intelligent for a penguin and can understand uh, human speech. And also, uh, okay, I, that, there's some stuff I don't want to spoil, but 
I wonder if they had any inkling that they were ending, which I guess not because the show ends on a massive cliffhanger, but the second half of the second season features an alarming number of deaths. Yeah, it's it's striking <laughs> that you get um, some fairly big characters who have been a part of it up until that point, and then they're just gone. But it, it makes it more exciting, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah... Uh, characters like Lamont, uh, Simon, who are rather or completely indecipherable to us, but just to have Killface interact with them, um, it's it's hilarious. And, and there are a lot of really great running gags throughout this. And not to mention the birthplace of at least a dozen Archer gags, like the exact same gags. Shall we talk briefly about the Exticles? Yeah, I mean, I watched both of the episodes <laughs> before this. That pause uh, was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> it they weren't bad, I would say, but they're they're still very much of the same style. They take place in the same world, have uh, many of the same characters. I guess it just wasn't as funny because the the premise wasn't there. I suppose it was a very basic. Not that uh, Frisky Dingoes is like really complicated or anything. But there wasn't much of a driving force there, kind of just falling around the Exicles doing their stuff. And who are the Exicles, for those who are unaware? They are essentially um, Xander Cruz, the other uh, protagonist. His uh, He thinks robot army. They're actually just people in robot suits uh, who, uh, who get into their own little set of misadventures, occasionally involving exploding collars. Uh, oh, God. There's, see, now I'm just – I'm saying these things and I'm just – I'm remembering – whole sets of gags that I'd completely forgotten about. Harumph. Just everyone with <laughs> even anyone with anyone who enjoys Archer, I would say that uh as a as a way of summarizing, because we should wrap this section up, it's I would say that Frisky Dingo is not quite as good as Peak Archer, but I definitely enjoy these two seasons more than I've enjoyed the last couple seasons of Archer. Which I've still enjoyed, but uh I think that this level of lunacy in this in these very condensed packages, but still with that basic intelligence and armed with sort of a more brutal form of the show cynical humor, that show cynical humor, I should say, uh, just really works for me. The last thing I'll say here, because uh, I, I was not able to watch the Exicles episodes, uh, but I do have to mention uh, that the, the design for them is clearly, uh, it's the Cylons from classic Battlestar Galactica that is their armor. Uh, and so there are, there's a number of visual gags like that throughout. And I don't, at least in the episodes I watched, it was not referenced upon. It's just sort of there. Uh, so there's all sorts of different types of humor, just like in Archer. Uh, and touches like that are, are the little extra details that I always uh, get a kick out of. So, uh, uh, Sean, do you have any final thoughts on Frisky Dingo? For anybody who has seen C-Lab or Archer, th- this is definitely worth checking out. Um, I would probably say in terms of overall enjoyment of the series, I might go Archer, C-Lab, and then Frisky Dingo, but it's the complete reverse if I'm looking in terms of just straight-up comedy. I think this is the most outright hilarious of the three, and all three, I think, are, are very strong for their own reasons. Oh, oh, actual last thing I have to mention near the end of the series, there's what I think has to be a deliberate reference to the Homicide Subway episode. Ooh, I, I missed that one. I'm going to have to catch it because that is one of my favorite episodes of that show. So 
you gotta love you gotta love a show that's gonna have all these different like you said earlier simon all these different types of of comedy and really not limit itself so uh certainly if you haven't checked out frisky dingo especially if you're an archer fan uh it's well worth going back it's only like you said it's two seasons only 25 episodes they're each uh 11 minutes long you can knock that out in in like a a saturday easy so definitely yeah check out some frisky dingo okay now we're gonna take a break and come back with our final segment i abraham lincoln do order that america's strangest most secret histories will only be recorded in one book these are the adventures of the amazing screw-on head. Our final pick for uh, Make You Watch a Thon number three is mine. And so to fit with this animation theme, and because there's no other time I'm going to get to talk about it, I uh, subjected Simon and Sean to The Amazing Screw-On Head, which is a comic by Mike Minola, but was made into a pilot uh, by Brian Fuller. That then was not picked up. I still can't believe it was not picked up by Sci-Fi Channel. It was like they put it up to like online vote and stuff, and it didn't get picked. Oh, I still can't believe it because I think the show is amazing. Uh, for for people who are unfamiliar with it, it's the tale of a secret history of America, uh, wh- wherein there is a <laughs> a sentient. Uh, head robot head that screws into different bodies um voiced by uh paul giamatti his name being screw on head uh who works for abraham lincoln and fights amongst other people in this pilot he's fighting his former manservant emperor zombie uh voiced by david hyde pierce um there's just there's so much to enjoy about the show so it's there's steampunk stuff there's um you know, it's a, it's a period piece with all this different sort of ridiculous stuff, uh, different ridiculous um, elements um, and, and faux his, history and everything. And, and the art style is very much like a woodcut kind of feel to it. Lots of dark, uh, lots of contrast, lots of dark colors and everything. Uh, I really enjoy Amazing Screw on Head. Um, and again, like I said, I still can't believe it didn't get picked up to be a show. What did you guys think? Had either of you seen or heard of The Amazing Screw on Head before this? Nope. Okay, uh, Simon, how about you? Uh, you know, that we used to have a copy of this pilot on DVD at Movie Land, and I'm sure I'd walked past it 700 times, and I had no idea what it was. But, uh, of course, later I, I found out Brian Fuller, Mike Mignola, who most people know for Hellboy, which... People, I'm sorry, but I don't care about Hellboy. I just don't. They're nice-looking movies, but they're... Anyway, I don't really care about Hellboy. But that being said, this is Brian Fuller, so as soon as I realized he was involved, I was excited to finally get a chance to watch this. And uh, a few thoughts. One, I think this is one of the funniest things Brian Fuller's ever written. Uh, Just he seemed to have such a blast writing it. Both just the marriage of sort of the secret-slash-alternative-history aspect which, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, way more engaging than any of the Seth Graham Smith stuff that I've uh, encountered uh, with that, with the sort of more uh, laconic, I guess you could say, um, writing and dialogue style than, than, he's, than you would necessarily associate with material like this. And, uh, and then along with the voice casting, which is fantastic, you've also got Patton Oswalt in there. Molly Shannon. 
uh, and Molly Shannon guest stars in this episode, which I find funny. Um, cause <laughs> anyway, but, um, but I have to say that of the voice actors, David Hyde Pierce just runs away with this thing. He's so good in this. I'm going to smoke you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, that if this had, uh, premiered as a pilot, uh, as a dry run on adult swim now that it most certainly would get picked up. I don't know if sci-fi, the channel, even at the time that this did air, would have been the right fit for it. Um, it, it very much feels like a part of the Adult Swim family in many ways. Um, the, love the stylization of it. Uh, like you both have said, the voice acting is fantastic. And yeah, very strange uh, tonally for Brian Fuller, but it makes sense in terms of some of his interests um, and the kinds of stories that he likes to tell, even if uh, this is a much more ridiculous premise. But yeah, very funny and um, really impressive to look at. When the demigod comes out, um, when I when I saw that, I thought of things like Spirit World stuff from The Legend of Korra, or even some uh, Miyazaki stuff like from Spirited Away. So uh, visually interesting, on top of being entertaining to listen to. I should I should add that it didn't actually air on Sci-Fi Channel. It aired uh, online. They put it up at Sci-Fi.com. And that this was in 2006. And so the internet determined that they weren't interested enough in this pilot for it to get mm -hmm. picked up and, and brought to series. And that explodes my brain. Because if that happened now, this is such a sweet spot for for fans uh, that it's just like insane with the people who are involved with this. And also just the type of specific comedy and uh and blending of these different elements of you know there's such a strong steampunk culture online there's such a strong i mean all of this cast uh i guess i don't know if paul giamatti has a strong fan base online but i mean Patton oswalt come on uh and then with brian fuller like all these different elements when you look at uh who all was involved in this coming from a mike mignola comic all these different things the fact that the internet did not have enough interest in this for it to get picked up is shocking to me. Okay, can can we stop relying on the internet to get things right? I mean, they didn't pick this up. Anonymous finger the wrong shooter in Mike in the Michael Brown case. They can't be relied on for anything. Let's let's just not <laughs> let them do. <laughs> let's not let them do any of that stuff. But um, as far as this goes, I think Sean's right. It may not have been a good fit for sci-fi, and it may not have been a good fit for the sort of people who happen to frequent sci-fi's website, I guess, whoever those people were. But uh, adults who might work. But, you know, then again, you know, this is the era of the Frankenstein series. I mean, Amazon is apparently resurrecting the live-action tick, therefore apparently making it out of bounds for DVD shelving. There you go. But... Uh, you know, this to me is a prime candidate to be resurrected as well. Maybe not with the same voice cast. They might not all be available, but I, I see no reason why they couldn't give it another shot, especially since Hannibal's not going to last forever. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's, you know, I would love to see this get uh, brought back in some way. I don't know that it, it will, but uh, when people talk about the different Brian Fuller series, we've now covered everything except Mockingbird Lane that Brian Fuller has done uh, on the Televerse. And uh, this is one that, like, I didn't, I loved this pilot before 
and I, I had no idea that Brian Fuller was involved with it at all up until, uh, you know, the first season, end of the first season of Hannibal. Uh, and, and so I, I don't know if the, the fanables out there are aware that this is a Brian Fuller thing. Um, I think that they would enjoy it. For me, it fits really squarely in with his uh, point of view and his uh, sense of humor because, you know, with all the, you know, with Emperor Zombie being undead, there's like, and, and um, Screw on Head having this tortured past, his loss of his body and and his, his true love and all of that stuff. I mean, there's a lot of themes here that he's liked to play with in the past. Uh, and like we said, just watching him do like pretty a straight up comedy, that's not something that he's done. Um, and his other shows, they've always been hour long with, uh, with dramatic elements in there as well, at the very least. So, uh, I don't know that that would ever happen, but I would be so in favor, just aesthetically. I really enjoy the look of it and the, the, I don't know. Gothic doesn't seem like it's the right word. What's the, well, how would you guys describe the art style here? I mean, you use the term steampunk. I think that's a good way to look at it. Do you have any final thoughts? On the Amazing Screw On Head, where would you guys rank this with uh, Brian Fuller's other pilots? I have not seen Mockingbird Lane, so apart from that, so we're considering all the series that he's done, right? Yeah, but just the pilots. Just the pilots. Um, good God. Uh, maybe this is above dead like me and that's it i really like his pilots i really like his show so this is a really difficult question and it, it's not meant to say that any of them are, are weak in any way yeah i think i would probably agree with sean on that ranking although the the only other thing i really have to add about this particular pilot it has to be one of the fastest paced pilots in history this thing i, I mean pilots are supposed to hum along the good ones but this one it crams a whole lot of plot and a whole lot of backstory and a whole lot of character into that 23 minutes. It's really quite something. And it mostly does it by doing everything really, really fast, which is fine. It it, it fits the tone and it makes it funnier as well. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say uh, is that we've already uh, given a bunch of praise to David Hyde Pierce, who is just having so much fun in this role. I enjoy all the different uh, performances, but I do have to give a particular shout out to Paul Giamatti because I think he does such a great job with that restrained element to screw on head. It just his, uh, he, oh, you're being too familiar, Mr. Groin. I mean, it's just, I, I really, I just, it's such a, he's such a uh, repressed kind of character that I really got a kick out of having that be, the lead, the the heroic figure instead of some of the other kind of characters we tend to get in that role. So I particularly enjoyed that bit of his performance as well. But that'll be my final thought on that. Any Sean, any final thoughts on Amazing Screw on Head? We've had references to Wonderfalls, Dead Like Me, and Pushing Daisies and Hannibal. I really hope now, having seen this, that there's some way to fit in the Amazing Screw on Head into Hannibal. <laughs> Ooh. I don't know. Why not, right? We'll see. <laughs> I don't know if that's a priority, but that would be fun. I can definitely imagine someone's skull getting. No, I'm not gonna even gonna get into that. But I, <laughs> there, my my brain goes places. I'll just say that. Fair enough. That's lovely. Well, on that cheery thought, we'll wrap up our our third annual Make You Watch a Thon. Simon, uh, of course, we mentioned for Sean and myself earlier. Where can our listeners uh, find you and your work online? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Sucker Howell, where I mostly 
well, anyway, I won't get into that right now. But it's not all about television is all I'm going to say. And uh, you can find my work occasionally, sometimes, although not recently, on SoundCloud site. And again, thank you all for listening and for listening for three years now. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, God. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.